Happy Easter to everybody who observes that holiday. We are live. This is Growing With My Fellow Growers. I'm Jack Greenstock, filling in this week for Shane of the Cheap Home Grow podcast. Without further ado, I'm going to go ahead and throw it off to my panelists so they can introduce themselves, and I'll start with Spartan Grown. Hello, everybody. I'm Spartan Grown. You can find me on Instagram at Spartan Grown for my red grow here in Michigan, or if you want to follow me at work, you can check me out at Mitten Canico. Also on Instagram. Thanks for coming. And next up, Matt Gates. Yes. Hey, everyone. It's Matthew Gates, Integrated Pest Management Specialist. If we end up talking about this sort of a thing and you're interested, please check me out on Instagram at Angel and on my YouTube channel, Zenthanol, where I make such content about pests and their treatment. Thanks again for coming. And next up, Can Can Grow. Yeah, what's up? Uh, can Can Grow here. When I'm not hanging out here with the uh, Growing with My Fellows Grow show, you can find me on all my social media, Can Can Grow. Thanks for having me. Thanks for stopping by. We always appreciate you. Next up, Kyle, Predicated Breeding. Introduce yourself. Hey, everybody. Glad to, glad to be here again. Uh, my name is Kyle Breeder. I own Predicated Breeding. And I breed cannabis to give to the community and uh, for medicine purposes or just uh, recreation. And I'm happy to be here. Thank you for coming. Next up, we got Noah the Grower. Hey, what's up, everybody? I'm uh, Noah the Grower with two E's from Instagram. I'm a cannabis grower from the Pacific Northwest, and I'm happy to be here. Thanks for joining us, Noah. We're always happy to have you. And I just want to do a quick uh, shout out to the early chatters, Black Ops Garden, Smiley's Garden, Smot Poker, Small Tubes, and Mike Angel, thank you all for coming and being here early, and happy Easter back to you, Smot Poker. And uh, without further ado, tonight's uh, first topic we're going to talk about is how does one properly vet a cannabis business to determine its legitimacy? And what I mean by that is how do you know if something is going to be good or bad before you decide to invest your money into it, whether it's seeds from a breeder or a soil mix or a nutrient line, uh, what factors does the people on the panel uh, use to help them determine what they're going to use. And I'll start it off with Spartan Grown. I'm going to give probably not the super popular answer, but it's going to be the real answer. Like everything in this industry, word of mouth and word from people that you trust as other good growers, to me, is always my first go-to because, you know, anybody can try to sell you their product, but obviously that's a biased opinion. So I've got like, you know, my crew of people that I grow, you know, my friends or people in the industry, you know, shout out Eagle Gardens in the garden <laughs> chat right now, you know, there'd be a get one of the guy's opinions that I want on something if I was looking at it, because I know he's a, a good grower and I respect his opinion. So to me, that means way more than anything you can read online or, I mean, obviously do my homework as far as the technology goes. I mean, and, and look behind the science and make sure that it's supported by science, but past that, I want, I'm sorry, I'm, I, I need people's recommendations of, from who've used the product and can give me a, you know, a good review on it. And that's, that means more to me. That's like gold. That, that's the gold standard for me. I totally agree with that. I mean, for me, I was really skeptical about LED lights. I heard a lot of bad stuff about them in my earlier cultivation days. I started with the metal halide and high pressure sodium. It took me a long time to switch to CMH until I saw a guy who sort of, I saw his product. It was better than what I was producing at the time. And he took me under his wing and he said, these are the lights I'm using. These are the nutrients I'm using. This is how I'm growing. So I saw him do it and I figured, well, his product is better quality. Like, what can I do to try and emulate that? 
and I tried his lighting and then the same thing happened with LEDs. It took a while for me to finally jump ship from the CMH to the LED, but it took my friends uh, firsthand opinion and their firsthand experience for me to, even though I saw on paper, they had better stats or whatever, you know, that wasn't enough to convince me like the micro mules per joule. I didn't even know what that meant. It took me like three weeks of hearing that to even like know what it meant and like figure out how to Google it. And then finally my buddy gave me a sample and he's like, oh yeah, I grew this under just LED start to finish. It's like, wow, really? Like this is impressive stuff. And uh, so I'll pass it over to Can Can Grow. The uh, question again is how would you determine uh, whether a business is legitimate before you invest your money with them? Well, I mean, I'd have to say I kind of do it the same way I do with, with anything else in any other industry. It's, uh, it is it is a, a lot of research. Um, but I think for me, I, I like to understand um, what all the what the all all the other options are. Understand what it is that I'm I'm looking for as far as a uh, as a product goes. So whether it's growing equipment or even uh, I think we were talking about you know even if we're talking about um, you know genetics and, and breeders and so on and so forth. Uh, understanding what I'd be getting if I uh, if I got well, I guess understanding what the low tier, what the mid tier, what the high tier is. Uh, for that product and then uh, see where that company, where that business kind of falls on that. And then obviously I, I, I agree hundred uh, percent with uh, getting firsthand experience, although it's not, that's not always available to you, especially with newer companies. So you're going to have to be able to kind of um, uh, decipher and read between the lines, I guess a little bit for me, it's a little uh, more, um, old school business stuff. Uh, I mean, I have some experience in business. So sometimes you can judge a company based on the quality of the information that they put out, uh, the quality of their online presence, um, not just in social media, but their websites. Uh, and then you can contact the company directly and just see what they, you know, what their, um, uh, what their response is like to their customers. It might speak to their customer service, but they got to know what their product is. And if they don't know, if they don't sound like they're informed, then, you know, then that's a little bit indicative of what you might be getting. So it just, it is, it's a lot of kind of research. And nowadays though, you can reach out. There's just, there's so many reviews online, so many different cultivators out there that you can uh, uh, reach out to directly that uh, you can respect whether you know them personally or not. And, uh, Hopefully they can give you some feedback. I think that's a great bit of advice. The one thing I'll say about reviews when you are looking through some, I'd be wary of the good reviews sometimes because I've personally been offered free equipment. Like I'd buy it and then they'd reimburse me through PayPal to leave them a five-star review, which I declined. But I've had several different companies offer this to me because they realize like if you have a social media presence, they'll get a lot of people to buy their product by seeing you use it and review it positively. <clears throat> But for the most part, a lot of reviews are honest and incredible. So it's great to go off of other people's reviews. Well, so, and on that point, you know, I'd be wary also of just reaching out and just, you know, putting out a blanket post on a forum or something. I mean, you got to take that all with a grain of salt and uh, you got to vet those those responses and those answers also. But I guess over time, you kind of get, you know, you get a feel for figuring out what uh, what you should absorb and what maybe you shouldn't. Couldn't agree more. And I wanted to uh, give Matt a chance to uh, give his opinion and maybe in the IPM and biocontrols and, and things like that. What are, uh, from a professional standpoint like yours, you may have some more industry insight than a typical 
cannabis gardener, um, what, what types of things do you look for when evaluating a product for IPM? I definitely agree with what Spartan had to say. Um, you know, I, if I encounter a problem or a product that I haven't used before, I don't like to recommend things that I haven't used personally. And I don't like to recommend things that I haven't, that I don't know people who have used uh, correctly or, or not correctly rather, but, to, but have used um, effectively. Um, because it's so important when you're using a biocontrol or some sort of a biopesticide or you're trying to ameliorate some sort of problem in some other fashion, uh, the amount of labor and time and product cost that goes into that, or like if you're getting a service like crop scouting uh, software, I'm a big fan and advocate of people recording their data, uploading it to a system that can take that, take those data and put it into a graph. So you can see historical trends, seasonally, weekly, yearly, and over time that can really help you a lot. But um, sometimes those are really expensive or, um, you have to train your crop scouts in some way, or you, you know you have to know what you're doing when you're using these things. But the thing that I like to vet is um, getting other people's opinions. Um, obviously, getting the opinion of the people um, producing the product or service. But then I need data. I need efficacy data. I will not roll over for assertions that don't have data. And I'm not a big fan of groups when they make sort of like broad claims that aren't really. Um, justifiable, I suppose. I feel like that can be very damaging. I agree. And I think it's um, on the company to be responsible about what types of information that they're pointing out. A lot of companies overclaim and underdeliver. So if they don't have data to substantiate their claims, sometimes uh, it can be disappointing if you try a product and it actually doesn't do what it says. So uh, looking into people that have actually taken the time to test it in the field and, and get firsthand experience. So Moving on to Kyle, I know you've done a lot of work with a lot of different breeders' genetics because you went through trying to find the most stress-testable genetics that would not harm me even in uh, extremely difficult environments, high, uh, big temperature swings, crazy humidity, things like that. So I was curious, without throwing any breeders under the bus specifically, like in that process of going through them, could you let us know a little bit about like how to find, other than maybe just your own, because I think a lot of people are going to go to you for stress-tested genetics, but when you were hunting, what did you look for uh, in a breeder and how could you find somebody that maybe is like a phony before investing in them? Yeah. So um, <clears throat> when I look back, I mean, I thought like, um, you know, well, I'm, it's hard to like say what I want to say, but not throw people under the bus, but so no, like the, like the if, basic, you need to, uh, I mean, if somebody put out yeah, like, work so, that you feel but, is subpar, it's your experience, right. you had it, so you're more than welcome to share it. Um, I know every company that is probably out there probably has a couple good, I mean, well, some probably don't have anything good, but I know like a lot do have some really good things and some bad things. So like <clears throat> saying that when I first started, I thought season was like the Taj Mahal because they had such a variety pack of so many different things and, and all these flavors and names and, and all these things. but the issue I was having is because they were so corporate, you know, and just like sales, like I was just getting tons of herms everywhere all the time. And I'm sure other people have probably experienced that as well. And then, um, you know, just a lot of those really big companies that are doing big things, um, <clears throat> you know, so then I start, I have to start doing, and as I got better and, and looking into things, I started doing more research and um, then I probably got like a little bit closer with like 
some stuff with like rare dankness, maybe there's like different like tiers, you know? And then basically <clears throat> as I was going through this process, I started getting deeper into who's been in the game longer, you know? And um, so, you know, I found Mean Gene uh, and started watching videos on him and Mean Gene from Mendocino was just like, um, you know, like the real deal. So what I was thinking while these guys were all talking is like, like any real business back in the day, it's uh, like word of mouth, you know, like who, who's been in the game and who's still in the game, basically like who's still, uh, you know, has their shit together and, and still has a bunch of hype like 10 years later and uh so that's kind of like this process i took i mean it took time i I wasted money and i'm sure like everyone else did but uh it's just basically kind of looking into uh you know the industry and seeing what names are out there and then doing your research and then looking them up and seeing uh you know the feedback and the forums and stuff like that being around and staying around is a, a good sign for any business in my opinion if you've been around for a long time most restaurants close. I think it's something like 50% close within the first year and like another 30% close within three years and just some huge portion of them all end up failing and not all, I should say, but a large portion end up not being successful. And I think that trend holds for many small businesses and startups. A lot of them are unsuccessful. So to see somebody who's been in the game and been around and still generating some hype, there's probably a reason behind it. And uh, if you're not hearing a lot of negative hype, and it's mostly positive. A lot of people in this community are quick to call out if somebody was negative. So if somebody's been around for a long time and they don't have a bunch of negative marks on their name, that's probably a really good sign. So next up, I wanted to pass it over to Noah the Groa. I know you've been in it for a while. Uh, do you have any tips on, you know, being able to figure out if a company is legit before you invest in them or breeder or whatever? Yeah, I do. Uh, um, this is how I got started. I was lucky. A lot of my friends and family growing up, people I've known since I was in high school, have been involved and always tried to get me involved. So I've been around it a whole a lot, and I have a real curious mind. So a lot of times I'll just uh, I like to go into you know people's rooms, see what they're running, see how they're running it, see what type of uh, you know clone strains they have in there, different techniques they're using to grow it, what kind of dirt they're using, what kind of fertilizer they're using, how high they have their lights, what kind of fans, what kind of exhaust. I like to use, do everything, and I'll just take little bits and from here and there, and then. Whatever, you know, I also kind of pass judge on, on your, the quality of stuff you got. So if you can put out good stuff, I'm going to respect your opinion a little bit more on if you think that, you know, that light works, this works, that I'm going to use that, you know. And then I like to just take little bits and pieces and experiment in different, you know, under different hoods in my room with different stuff and then just fine tune it, eliminate stuff as I go. So and then obviously word of mouth from people that I respect. And then uh, a good buddy of mine owns the biggest, uh, I'm really good buddies, the guy that owns the biggest grow shop around here. And um, just kind of like everybody said, though, you kind of got to like just throw some stuff out because it's like sometimes they'll just kind of like try and promote stuff that's kind of hype stuff. But uh, yeah, that's just some of the tricks that I use. Really appreciate you sharing that. And I think uh, I got to agree with you on if somebody produces a good quality product, maybe taking note of what they're doing specifically and asking them questions, because even if it's not your exact style, maybe you'll venture out and grow in their cultivation method later on, or you'll see, wow, they're running the lights a little closer or a little further away than I am. And they're having good results. For sure. And um, Eric, we had a question in chat and I know you probably know the answer. Do you know uh, who, what the company that Mean Gene sells his seeds under, what the company name is? It's called Freeborn Selections. Uh, there we and go. Um, he goes by Mean Gene from Mendocino on Instagram, but Freeborn Selections also has a page. I want to give a shout out to Eagle Gardens in the chat because sort of uh, one thing that Noah said that sort of clicked with me, he said, you got to throw some stuff out. Like even if it's from the biggest grocery store owner in the area who might have a ton of knowledge, like 
everybody has some good knowledge and I think everybody has some bad knowledge. And what Eagle always says is you got to sort of take these common threads that line up. You listen to all these grow shows, you're going to start hearing things over and over and over. Those things that are repeated by people that you respect, they're having good, good results. That's probably like, quote, the truths in our growing experience right now, or, or at least like what we know to be the growing truths. It might be bro science, but more and more of it's getting represented by real horticultural science. So I think uh, the more you can get them to line up and then personally experiment yourself in your own grow and see what works best for you in your environment. That's what it's sort of all about, the trial and error, the experiment and the science and art of growing cannabis. I think that's really good advice. Um, that's how I learn most of my knowledge, I think, is because I just hear over and over again. And the ones that you hear the most of are obviously are the ones that you tend to remember more, at least in my case. So I can't agree more with that. It takes me a little while. I'm like a quick to learn and quick to forget sometimes. Like I'll, I'll learn something really fast and then I'll forget it really fast. So I have to like reread it or re-listen to the podcast or whatever. But uh, going back and like we were talking earlier today about, I think it was wedding cake. And like the fact that it's not actually, the strain isn't called wedding cake. It's a uh, triangle mince number 23. It's a triangle kush crossed to the animal mince. And like, I've looked that up so many times. I thought it was number 33. And then when I looked it up today, oh, it's number 23. And like that just imprints it a little deeper in my mind. And it's like, you know, one of those things with cannabis, the more you're around it, the more you listen to these shows, the deeper it gets ingrained. And that's why I think sometimes the bro science is like so hard ingrained. And when we do find a new finding that says something against what everyone believes, like, the whole flushing thing. I'm really curious to see more and more about that because a lot of people are saying that like it doesn't do anything, but I think a lot of people really strongly believe that it does have some impact. So I'm excited to see more and more stuff coming out. When it comes to, I have a question for the panel, actually a small one um, until we get chat people in the chat, let's get some, some questions to answer. I think we're very much rearing to go with that, but I got um, some follow-ups too, but I want to hear yours. Okay. Sorry. I just wanted to ask people um, when it comes to like, like a like an IPM like when it comes to like a product um, or service that you're going to use let's say that your friends haven't used it or, or the normal people that you would rely on haven't don't have an opinion um, when you're trying to assess um, a product like do you do you look for efficacy like do you ask them for data or information or like some sort of like empirical evidence that what they're talking about works or like the, some fundamental like way how it works um, is understood or do you guys just kind of try it and wing it and see if it works and you don't really care as long as it works in your um, trial, it works and it's fine. Well, I'll say this free samples are super effective at uh, giving you the option. Like I know a lot of companies will give you like a little two ounce tester bottle. That's like enough usually to cover at least one plant. And if you want to try a specific thing, maybe it works, maybe it doesn't, but even if somebody showed me a white paper that says this is really effective for killing thrips, right? Uh, then they send me that product and like, maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. Um, but I love getting the free sample, trying it myself, seeing like, oh, wow, that was really effective. And then now I can support buying that product. But that's just uh, one way that I've approached it currently. And I'm going to kind of piggyback off of what Jack's saying. Um, and I've said this before in shows, but I, I love going to events, you know, cannabis events. And at those events, a lot of times there's vendors and that's where I'll see new products. And like, I kind of do both um, to answer your question, Matthew, I actually will sit there and talk to those people and ask them questions about how, you know, what's the mode of action? How, how is this actually, you know, working? And because those are questions that I'm going to have to answer to patients, 
you know what I'm saying? Or, you know, so right. I want to know, I want to know why this stuff works, how it works. And then if it's a product that, you know, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking if this is a product that, Hey, maybe I can come to go to work is so I can start asking these guys questions, commercial questions. You know, I know what kind of testing we have to pass. And so I can ask all those intelligent questions to the actual, usually it's somebody who's more than just a, you know, a, a, an employee at a grocery that was trained by a rep. I'm usually at least talking to the rep. So you get a little bit more knowledge level there. So I try to mine them for information that way. And then even after that, I have it in the back of my mind that, you know, this is their, this is what they're making their money on. So I'm still skeptical about it, but I'll take your sample. But if I talk to them and I get a sense that they really are just trying to blow smoke and there's no real substance there, then I won't even walk away with the sample. I appreciate that answer. And I'm kind of the same way too. And I've definitely had both things happen. Um, that's one of the reasons why, especially with biocontrols, um, you know, they have to sell bugs and that there's a, there's a bias in that way. But when I'm talking to people who aren't just the salespeople, but the people who run the insectaries or something like that, I can get sort of a better understanding of how they like quality check their insects or something like that. And I think that's a, that's really powerful to actually go in and do that deep dive. Any place that I, when I talk to just, I can't remember who said uh, it was, it was a really good, um, they said to call the company. It might've been can can I don't know. But if you call the company and whatever employee answers that phone, if they're more knowledgeable than you are on the phone about whatever the product is, I like, if it's, if they, if they know more than I do on whatever it is, I'm already impressed because you know, well, for example, I'm going to sound like I'm doing commercials for everybody, all these products we're bringing up. But for example, the first time and every time since, and I've called probably three or four times, uh, the horticultural lighting group, I, every time I've called the person who answered the phone was the owner of the company, Steven Johnson. So, I mean, when you can call a number that they put on their box and you get to the owner and, and you get that kind of customer service. Wow. So it's those kind of things that really will impress me about a product and make me forget about all my, you know, yeah, um, everything that I was even worried about because I'm so impressed with that, that I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm down. I'll at least try it. I completely agree with that. Yeah. I, I am super, I, I very much respect um, when it doesn't sound like I'm getting somebody who like you described is just sort of a salesperson towing a line and I really get the impression that they um, actually know what they're talking about and are passionate enough to really explain it in granularity. I want to give a shout out in the chat to Percy's Grow Room. He's coming in all the way from the UK, so I know it's super late there. I want to remind everyone in the chat, if you haven't already, to click out, hit that thumbs up button, and make sure you're in the live chat so you can see all of the comments and other people interacting in the chat because I think uh, there's like a whole second life on in the chat it's really fun to follow if you're in there yeah and if you're not following percy follow him man he's got some videos going uh, he's got a little i think it was on his channel or it might have been the oh i'm going to screw this up grow room 420 i believe was the was the channel they have going it's a little talk it's in, i love it man they just fucking entertain me it's just growers talking it's just one of those shows that just growers sitting around shooting the shit love that show guys it's like the british version of uh, talking shit with eagle yeah yeah exactly with more people so I wanted to uh, go to one of the questions that I pulled aside before the show started. Somebody uh, had suggested one of the listeners a show talking about THC tolerance breaks. And if any of us have tried taking tolerance breaks, 
And they actually mentioned in their experience, they quit smoking for about 15 years. They started smoking again and their THC tolerance had dropped so much. Whenever they used high THC cannabis, they got really paranoid and had a lot of anxiety. And I know Kyle, we talked a little bit off air about your experience with like high THC varieties and anxiety. And maybe you could start us off with a little bit of uh, some of your experiences with not necessarily tolerance breaks, but like how you were able to overcome that anxiety associated with THC. Yeah, I could I could help a little bit. Um, so I guess just like a, a quick short background. Uh, obviously, when I grew up, I mean, I was taking like twenty person gravity bong hits and smoking all the blunts to the head and doing it, whatever else was doing. And then I smoked this one blunt that this apparently the grower said not to smoke the whole thing. I don't quite know why, but uh, after that, like, uh, I just got something happened after that blunt because ever since then I just got real anxious. But then so that I had to quit. But even coming back into it. Um, obviously I was having issues with, with, like you were just stating is like tolerance. So, um, what used to go from an unlimited amount turned into just being like one or two hits. And, um, I knew there was something with, with the chemo types because certain weeds made me relax and some made me more anxious. Uh, sativa is my Lord. I don't even mess with those. Cause I just get like, uh, way too uh, out of control with like raciness, like panic almost. Uh, so then I started getting into like the diesels and this, there's a chemo, there's a certain, you know, uh, and I think you mentioned it before, Jack, that's uh, mainly found in diesels. Uh, that really seemed to help me a lot. So I kind of started searching towards there. And um, so I'm still trying to perfect the, the, that part of it. So I know it's something that has to do with diesels and, um, you know, that, that profile. And um, just recently, we were speaking about before I got on the show, is uh, I just recently went to the dispensary and wanted to try because, you know, we don't know what we're smoking. It's not like we, we lab test all the cannabis and the weed that we're always all smoking. So the only way for me to really navigate through my own endocannabinoid system was to get, uh, you know, actual analysis on what I was smoking. So I tried recently to get a one-to-one, um, obviously THC to CBD. And um, it was a dramatic difference, man. Like I could actually take four times as many hits off this pen than I ever could versus like a, a regular uh, you know, like a THC pen. Um, and even just like this, the second I hit it and exhale, the onset is just calming in my chest. It's, it's really weird. And uh, it's, it's an amazing for uh, just to be relaxed, but still functional. And it, it puts me into like a real deep REM sleep. So, um, you know, I would suggest for anybody who's kind of struggling is maybe kind of feel around the diesels and uh, try and play with certain ratios to see what really works for them. And, uh, you know, just kind of go from there. And I worked with a lot of people who were brand new cannabis users in their adult life, like late adult life, uh, sometimes cancer patients and things like that, they were taking it orally, a lot of edibles. And we'd start them with like an 18 to one where it was like almost all CBD and tiny amount of THC. And you'd slowly work them up to like a two to one or a one to one because a lot of them want to avoid that psychoactivity and, and that fear or paranoia or raciness that can come with THC intolerance. And for anybody who doesn't know, a tolerance break could be as short as a few days or a week. Sometimes people even like myself would consider like going to bed for eight hours or whatever and not smoking a tolerance break because when you wake up in the morning, that first buzz you get the next morning is way more intense than basically everything else throughout the rest of the day. Or if you go to work for a long period of time, that's about as short of a tolerance break as some of us ever take. But certain people actually will go and take like multiple days or weeks or even like Joe Rogan does sober October and they quit using cannabis for that period of time. I was curious if anybody on the panel has any experience using a tolerance break. I wanted to actually read a comment in chat real quick and then comment on that because it applies here. And I think it's interesting 
because I was, it changed my answer to what you were just asking. So let me read the comment first. And it's from Mike Angel in the chat. And he says, uh, I've been smoking a lot of rosin from my press and then randomly smoked a joint one day and was floored. I'm assuming the joint was obviously flour. Um, is there some terpene or ester tolerance to, to not just THC tolerance? And I think, you know, when you, I've noticed that people say that before, like if they've smoked a lot of concentrates and then they didn't really smoke flour for a long period of time. And then when they smoked flour, it really hit them hard. And um, it all kind of goes back to my comments about the um, full plant medicine, I think. And I think, yes, you, you have some loss of, of um, terpenes, compounds, flavonoids, possibly um, even probably some cannabinoids you're losing. And you have to understand this plant that we're, you know, it's a medicinal plant that we are still have, you know, unidentified compounds that we don't even know about yet. So I'm sure, yes, there's, we're losing something. Every time you refine what we'll call it, refine down a product, um, there's still some loss. So if you take it in its purest form, where it's just the flower, um, you have a greater chance, I believe, to get the full entourage effect, which means all the different chemicals working together. So I think that's what you're experiencing with that comment. Um, and what I myself, like, I'll take, like, I'm, I'm never not, I've never really gone more than a couple of days since I've started, um, using cannabis because it's helping me medicinally and it's just like painful. So what I'll do is, um, I will just only use edible for a while. If I want to take a tolerance break from, if I, I'm usually always that way because I feel that the more break that I can give my lungs for because I'm sure the smoke isn't helpful. I'm sure there is maybe some harm that's coming of it. I'm not going to sit here and pretend like that's not happening. So I tried to skew towards the edibles and, uh, you know, I'll take, you know, an RSL capsule or something, or like this before the show, I ate a cookie that had some infused oil, uh, butter. So I don't know, especially in these times, I just, I'm really trying to be careful not to smoke as much. Usually you'll see me on the show smoking like a chimney and I don't think I've hit it yet once. So I'm very itchy too, almost like I have it now, but I'm starting to feel the cookie already kicking and I don't need it. So that's where I'm at. So yes, I, I, I use tolerance breaks, but it's not really in the traditional sense. It's, it's by using a, a different, um, you're giving your lungs a, a tolerance break, so to speak. Yeah, my, yeah, there you go. I'm giving my lungs a tolerance break. Perfectly said. Yeah. I actually sort of do the same thing because I, I smoke a decent amount of my cannabis, but I also have my own vaporizer and my buddy just let me borrow a uh, shout out to my buddy. I won't name who he is, but he let me borrow his stores in Bitcoin mighty handheld vape, which is a pretty good quality vaporizer that I've been using the last few days. So my smoking's going down a lot and I can, especially because like the virus and everything going on right now, if you cough out in public, people like give you an evil eye. So <laughs> I'm trying to do sort of more like you, more edibles, uh, less smoking, but the vaporizing is sort of like a nice little sort yeah, of break on your lungs. I don't want to, I don't want to hijack it this because I want to hear everybody else's opinion on, on the tolerance break because I'm really curious about it. But um, let's get back to that. I want to talk about that vaporizer because I was actually looking in between that one and their volcano. I know, I mean, obviously they're very different, but I wanted to hear what your opinion was, but let's go to, let's, let's finish everybody else first. I, I want to get their opinions. Yeah. Can, can, do you ever, uh, experience, uh, or experiment with the tolerance break or do you have a good or bad experience with trying? No, I, I, I can't say that I've ever, uh, you know, kind of had a premeditated tolerance break. Um, 
I guess I'm not I'm not as heavy as a as a user as um, some are, but I'm 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 a consistent user, and I generally use it at night before I go to bed to help me uh, you know sleep uh, better. So I, I think if anything, maybe I, I just uh, I just try and uh, I don't stick to one any one cultivar. I probably try a lot of different things and and. Uh, just don't do it excessively. So I haven't felt anyways that I've needed to have a tolerance break. It's always had a pretty um, uh, consistent effect for me anyways. Yeah, I guess you don't really need to. Some people, like there's a song uh, called Couldn't Get High, and I think those people might need a tolerance break or but that was, might have been before dabs because I think a lot of people will do a dab and that'll get them feeling good. But even then, like Spartan was talking about, you could do a bunch of dabs and go back to flower, and that's what gets you high or medicated. But to what you mentioned, I did just, uh, as I posted on my Instagram, I did just uh, pick up, uh, you know, the Mighty uh, about a month ago or so. So most of my consumption now has been through uh, Vaporizer and it's, it's really nice. I really, I really like it. And uh, um, it's, it's my go-to way of consuming now. So how about you, Matt? Do you uh, ever deliberately take a tolerance break or have you in the past? And what do you think? Yeah, um, I have a friend who uses cannabis medicinally because he um, he used to wrestle and he has had a compound fracture from a time when he was posting. For those who don't know, it's when you put your arm out and uh, somebody tripped over the mat and tripped on his arm wrong. And then he, he also had sort of a broken sinus plate. And so he's in chronic pain, you know, mild to moderate quite often, but he does even take tolerance breaks. And myself, uh, there was a time when I was afraid that I was having some, uh, like, uh, what's it called? Costochondritis. It's like a, like a sort of a chest pain. And, and I was actually sort of afraid that maybe I was smoking too much or that maybe I was one of those unlucky ones who is susceptible more so than others to the particulates and all of that. Like Spartan's saying, like you're saying, Jack, I think it can be helpful for some people to take a sort of a a lung break, if nothing else. Yeah, I definitely have uh, had that experience like benefit me greatly, especially if you're like not cleaning your bong. Like I've had experience where I'm like coughing up resin, and that's just never good for you. I I don't care what if it's oh, cannabis. And that's, uh, that's wow. Yeah, no good. What about you, Kyle? I, I know we actually we started off with you, so I'm going to go over to Noah the Grower. Yeah, I, I've definitely uh, took in um I've took in. Uh, tolerance breaks because of uh i've had surgeries and health issues and so you know i've definitely experienced it and just like uh kind of like piggyback off of kyle said i just you know experiment with strains and just kind of smoke slowly just you know kind of ease back into it and i'm not the uh, uh i definitely like lower thc and i've i always try and tell everybody i'm such in love with flour that i don't really mess around with concentrates that much anymore because it also got me a little anxious so i just kind of knocked it off but i always tell them i'm like man i love it so much the, the good taste of it a really good uh, flour i just don't understand why you would want to ruin because i know people that can't even get stoned on it anymore they just only can smoke concentrate so i kind of just steer towards flour and then just kind of like uh what can can said i just i don't smoke as much as other people too so I, yeah i've had experience with it for sure yeah, that's uh, definitely interesting to hear because a lot of people assume that we all just sort of smoke all the time as growers, and that might not always be the case for all of us. I'll say I had an unintentional tolerance break when I was 16 years old. 
I had just gotten my license and I was driving, had a little bit of cannabis with me and I got pulled over and arrested and the cop actually beat the shit out of me. <laughs> and I had like a year of probation with random drug testing followed by uh, another, you know, year of like other follow-up type behavior shit. But anyway, it ended up making me stop smoking for several years and uh, I didn't start smoking. I ended up being like five years till I was 21. And uh, man, it was a long, long time. But the first time I came back, I definitely felt really good. But I realized in that time that I wasn't using it, that it really is medicinal for me. Because when I started using it again, like I was in college, my grades started to improve. I was sleeping better. I, I was like, oh, damn, this is really just a medicine. Like I shouldn't be taking tolerance breaks. This is benefiting me. Like I need to be ingesting it. Pers- like that's at least how I feel. And um, since then, I haven't had to stop for any reason. And I think it's uh, consistently shown to be beneficial in my life. So I'm glad that we were able to go through and discuss this. And as far as the as far as the mighty vaporizer goes, I've only had it for like 24 hours at this point, but I've watched a few reviews. Other people have uh, commented on, I guess, like the build quality being plastic, a little bit susceptible to chipping if you like knock out the already been vaped bud without using the brush, which I wouldn't suggest, but it's like tempting because the way that it comes apart into two pieces, you might want to just like tap it and do a little jar, get it out. So I would suggest not doing that. Um, other than that, though, it hits really good. It's got the temperature control right on there, and uh, I have really no complaints. Battery life is pretty solid. Gives you a really solid hit, clean taste. And uh, does it remind you of like a like a bong hit? Does it have that kind of a flavor? Is it like a joint hit, or is it like every vapor razor I've used, and I haven't used a ton, it always makes it always even on the lowest settings, it always makes it taste like burnt popcorn or something. It always changes the flavor. It's not the flavor of the weed that I put in there. So as far as flavor goes, I would say it's definitely different than smoke. Um, you're going to, depending on the temperature you set it to, get different flavors. So the lower the temperature, I'm gonna, you're going to get more of those like fruity and, and pinier things. And the higher the temperature, it's going to get more of that like charred and burnt popcorn taste. So like 311 is like the lowest end of the range. I'd set my vape to 315. And then I slowly work up to like the 350 range. And that's for like my daytime usage. Uh, at night, I like to go about 390, and so it really just depends. And also airflow, getting the proper airflow is important to not over-toast the uh, product. Because really that's what that's what I was looking for, is I was looking for, I, I wanted a healthier way. But I mean, I, I do smoke through bongs with ass, cat, ass catchers, I wish, ash catchers. And so that's filtering quite a bit through water. But I'd like to, you know, I mean, to me, the whole vaporize, vape, how it just vaporizes the uh, the actual, um, what would you call it? The cannabinoids, all that flavonoids, whatever the the oils. How it vaporizes the oil, but it doesn't actually combust the material. That just seems like the best filtration. I don't know how you could get better than that. But for me, I love the fl- flavor of weed, especially my my homegrown weed, and it just seems like it doesn't taste every time I and I got. What's the most packs? I, I tried it in a packs and, and to me it, it didn't. So maybe I just, are you saying maybe I, I just at a higher, too high of a temperature? I usually go the lowest temperature too. It just so yeah, I mean, like it could be the design because every single vaporizer I've tried is a little bit different. Like the Vapor Brothers is a little bit different than the uh, Mighty that I'm using is different than the Volcano. I actually don't like the Volcano for this reason. I don't like bag vaporizers. Any bag vaporizer, the vape gets stale. It gets in that bag and it sits there versus one that's like handheld it's directly convection heating the product 
slowly cooling the air, especially like there's one that I'm looking into getting. It's half the price of the Mighty. It's called the Ghost Vape MV1. And there's like the way that it's designed, it brings in a bunch of cool air. So by the time you get it, the vapor is not actually getting superheated to the temperature that the actual product had to get heat to. So from what everybody that's reviewed it online, independent third party people and like just growers that I know online, um, they all seem to really love it. Even the ones that have like the Mighty and, and other more expensive desktop vaporizers seem to get really good draws off of it and prefer that one. So that's uh, the one if, you know, after I'm done trialing this Mighty, if I don't fall in love with it, I'm probably going to go with that MV1. But um, I think that there's yeah, a lot of know, really good. Let me know because I'm, really I'm really interested in it because this is a great example of what we kind of started the conversation about vetting companies is like, I looked into one and I got the one everybody was liking, you know, I got them and it's just like, no, I hate it. I, and I had several different vaporizers. Firefly was the other one. And it's just like, no, I specifically was looking for, you know, the ones that they said was preserved taste and everything. And it's just like, no, it didn't, wasn't even close for me. So I, I've been so burned by them. I just, it's one of those things, like maybe you were saying with the LEDs, you're like, I'm just closing my mind to that now because <laughs> because of that. So uh. yeah, and they've definitely changed a lot. And literally every single one that I've tried is different. Like every from Airizer to uh, Vapor Brothers, even though they're both whip style, the Airizer also has a bag. I prefer the whip on both of them. But I like the Airizer for people that aren't used to vaporizers. There's a learning curve. So like your inhalation, how slow you draw will make the temperature higher. If you inhale fast, it makes the temperature lower. So if you're taking a really fast inhale, you're gonna get a smaller puff taking a really slow inhale you're gonna get a bigger ventilate over here man trying to just suck it as fast as possible what are you talking about <laughs> so a lot of people do that and then you get a, a tinier puff and then there's like the airizer one one thing they did to avoid that is they have a built-in fan so it consistently you don't even have to suck you just you know put your mouth around the tube and it, it blows the smoke into your mouth or the vapor into your mouth at a constant rate and i think that's going to give you the most consistent vapor or just like getting used to taking a consistent drag like a slow smooth draw off of it I can't speak to other vaporizers, but uh, I know with the Mighty, it uses both conduction and uh, convection. So uh, that may help um, to not have that burnt uh, popcorn um, taste that you were I talking gotta admit, about. I do get a little bit of it with the Mighty using it, like, and just at the higher temperatures. But that being said, I love the conduction convection style because I don't have to stir it at all. Um, my Vape Brothers, I loved it. It had amazing flavor and the longer whip, I think helps cool down the vapor and give you the best flavor. But with the Mighty, the thing that I love is I can hit the whole entire bowl down, whatever it is, five, six, eight, 12, however many hits, and I never have to stir it up. It just evenly vaporizes the entire bowl. Where with like the Vape Brothers, I have like a little dental pick that I reach down in there and stir the bowl around to get the top fresh with the green stuff that didn't get as hit as hard by the vapor or the heating element. Yeah, so, and um, the nice thing about a unit like um, the Mighty or I guess other units where the same feature is that you can control the temps uh, by individual degrees. So in the, in the lower temps, I guess, I think if I remember correctly, lower temps uh, does enhance the flavor, whereas the higher temps um, enhances the, uh, the THC hit, the you know, uh, the psychoactive stuff. So, um, and more mercy and more line a little after like you get to the three, like 70 plus range, you're getting into the more sedative terpenes. And like Spartan said, you don't have to go all like combustion to get the medical effects off of the terpenes and cannabinoids are known. You can go on and look, there's like a chart. Um, I'll actually pull it up because I have it in my photos. I saved it earlier and I'll just read through a couple of examples of like 
THCA, 220 degrees Fahrenheit. CBDA is 248. Alpha pinene is 311. THC is 315. Caryophyllene, that's the one Kyle was talking about earlier. Terpene is uh, 349 degrees. Myrcene is 334. D-limonene is 349. Uh, CBD is 356. CBN is 365. So 365 and above is going to be pretty sedative. CBN is very sedative. 388 uh, is humulene and linalool. So those are two of the more sedative terpenes as well. And so that's why I go 390 for my night sessions and above. And just for reference, a big lighter is like a thousand, over a thousand. So to me, the, the combustion, the lowest temperature combustion will happen at, according to this chart, is 451 degrees Fahrenheit. And the benefits with some of these, you know, with a vaporizer like this is that it's, you can, you can um, adjust it very granularly for, you know, for your specific individual taste. So not just with temperatures, you can, you can pack uh, the chamber a little bit different to see if that gives you a bit of a different effect. And, um, you know, so just there's, cause everybody's different. You can see what works best for you. But to me, I'm just thinking about it. To me, wouldn't it be the the best to be able to vaporize at the highest temperature without combusting, so that you could get the full range all at once? And that's well, what I'm missing. If you don't want it, like during the daytime, I would not do that because I want it all. I'm talking about for me, man. I want all of it. I don't want to have anything taken out. I want the whole thing. I'm just saying why people would go lower. The, the reason to go lower is that myrcene, linalool, and humulene are extremely sedative. So if you have to study or if you have to get work done, a lot of people don't function well with those in their cocktail. So like alpha pinene and limonene, which go at a little bit lower temperature, are more productive for people during the daytime. But I, think I, what, I agree. I think what the wider some spectrum people... is best for a lot of people. Sorry, sorry, Jabs. But I think what some most people do is they'll they'll pack it and they'll start at a lower temp and then gradually increase the temps to get the most out of, um, you know, that particular session. But I mean, like I said, everyone's individual. If you want to go right, uh, you know, right to a high, a high temp, then, you know, you could do that. It, it just depends. And the only way you'll know is if you have a chance to, to try it out yourself. Well, this is the cheap home grow podcast. So I got to throw this out there. I'm so uh, frugal that I will vaporize my bowl and then I'll dump it out in my little ashtray from subcooler or rolling tray, I should say. That's like shaped like a cue card bent in half so I can easily pour the already been vaped out into my bong bowl. And then I'll smoke the last hit. So I know I'm getting literally everything. I vaporize it from the lower temperature, build it all the way up, get all the vape hits out of it. And then I pour it out and it gives you this really uh, toasty, popcorn-y, like unappealing already been vape. You sort of grow a, it's like a coffee, like a toasted coffee almost flavor. Yeah, you grow accustomed exactly. to it. That's what exactly what I was talking about. That was the flavor I was getting. So I was just going too high, but maybe that's exactly what, yeah, it's weird. I, I have to sacrifice flavor to be able to get the buzz done. Sometimes yeah. also, like for me, I've noticed that like, like I have an atomizer, which isn't, I mean, that's a special kind of vaporizer and that's mostly for, that's for concentrates, not um, a, a botanical product, but I have the paranormal DNA 25 or 250 C and I have the sayonara, um, that goes with it and it's just a titanium bucket and it works really well but you got to be careful you can't the more you have to clean it pretty pretty um constantly if you don't do that then you can get that those off tastes and for a little while I was I was worried and concerned that like I was like I had some like weird uh contaminant or something but these are these are made the reason why I got this was because I didn't have to worry about like some weird um 
low-level metal or glue or uh, anything um, in the heating element. You know what I mean? No, I totally agree with that. I think a lot of people really like uh, quartz and, and things like that, and specific uh, glasses and um, ceramic are a lot of popular options that people will look for in heating elements to make sure the Vapor Brothers box vape that I mentioned earlier, they always comment how a lot of the knockoffs use glues that when the vaporizer heats up, you're starting to inhale them. So like to, you should, if you're going to get a box desktop style vape, I would go through Vapor Brothers because a lot of the, I've even seen the lower knockoff ones that buddies have. You heat it up and you start to smell like a burnt plastic smell and it's a, a little bit cheaper product, but it's not worth impacting your health negatively like that. So good to look out for those types of things. That's cool. Uh, shout out to Fumador and Flavors in the chat too. He said, you know, if you're not frugal like Jack and, and take that last little bit and hit it in your bong, you can take that. And he said he sprinkles it on his, um, they, they call it the ABV, you know, the already been vaped. He sprinkles it on his dog's food, but it's basically decarbed already. So their medicine is still there. You can like, also he said you can use it like in edibles. Like, you know, you can I have made it, it into edibles. My friend uh, makes like no bake uh, cookie balls and like cake balls. And you taste a little bit of that already been vaped in there unless they use a really good recipe, but a couple of them and they do get you a really nice uh, medicated and there's no heat at all necessary because it's already decarb. So it's great to use for that. You can put it into oils, you can put it into butters, things like that for making your own edibles at home. It's a, a really frugal way to make your cannabis stretch as far as possible. One thing I wanted to go into, I have another topic. Um, this is very subjective. So don't feel like you need to back any of this shit up with science. I'm just asking your personal opinions right now. Um, so what qualities do each individual uh, find that make cannabis good? Like what makes cannabis stand out to you? What's the most important thing to you as a grower as well as a smoker? So uh, for example, like taste, effect, how it smells, how it burns, how it washes or presses, things like that. Um, and then a second part, a characteristic that we don't like about something good that we would like to change to make it a little bit better. And I'll start off with Spartan Grown. So the characteristics I'm looking for, usually the very first and foremost is flavor, because if it's something that I'm going to consume and I'm a flower smoker, I want it to taste good. Um, that's usually, it's like a tie, to be honest with you. Really, I'm I'm chasing flavor now because I already have medicine, so it's a little unfair. But really, when you look, if I didn't have that, I would look be looking for more the medicinal value of it, and I generally lump that into um, two strains or two effects, I should say. One effect I'm looking for is just something that's pain relief that re release body aches for for my pain, and then um, the other effect I like to call happy my happy weed or my, you know, um, antidepressant weed or whatever like that, you know, so a lot of people will call that daytime, but to me, a lot, some daytime stuff, what people would call daytime is just something that makes my heart beat fast where other daytime stuff might be something that's just weak. Like I don't feel much of a high. I feel that slight little head buzz, but that's about it. But to me, when I say happy weed, I mean, it, it actually puts you in a happy mood. It like you love music you know, music is so much better and uh, food is just so much more tastier. And uh, to me, that's just, uh, that to me is the daytime strain. That's the happy weed. And then my nighttime strain is the stuff that's going to put me to sleep and, and dull my pain so I can sleep through the night. So, um, so for me, first and foremost, I have to have those two slots filled medicinally. And then 
now that I have those filled medicinally, I want that same medicinal effect, but a better flavor than what I have. Not saying that what I have is terrible, but what I'm saying, what I have, if it's better, I want to find it and I want it. So I'm, I'm right there with you. So that's how I am with it. With it. What was the, I forget the last part of your question. There's like, if, if you've got something good that you like, like let's say Spartan glue, <clears throat> for example, something that you've got, it's a staple. It's, it hasn't gotten Spartan kicked yet. It's in your garden. You love it, but it's good. You've, you've established, you like flavor. You like something that's got a good medical effect. You're always looking for that. Something that's a little bit better. Um, so now if you've got that Spartan glue, what could you do? That's a little bit better. Like what about it? Would you improve? Oh, for sure. I can improve the flavor. I'm not, everybody likes the gas. I'm not one of those people and it's gassy. It's, it's pretty gassy. Um, it's not super gassy, but it's pretty gassy. Uh, if I could make it sweet or if I could make it stand out in a way of, a, you know, uh, another flavor that I might like, I like it just as it is. But um, also node spacing, it's almost like, it's almost like OG node spacing. It's like a glue with, with ridiculous node spacing. So, and it likes to stretch. So um, yeah, it's very imperfect in that way. So uh, morphology, uh, yeah, I would, totally love it to grow slower <laughs> uh, most people like the fast growing strains and um, that works good for scroggings things like that but when you have fast growing strains with with wide node spacing it's not really fun to deal with a lot so yeah it could be easier to grow so that's what i would look for very good uh, input there some of the stuff that's difficult to grow is is worth it sometimes but uh if you could snap your fingers or wave a magic wand and make it better one way i always like to hear that kind of stuff especially as like a aspiring breeder i see some cuts that i really like and love to think about what i would like to do to make them better and i always like to hear other growers opinions so can can grow i know you've got a lot of different stuff going on you're always doing pheno hunts and you've got your own keepers so um what do you think what are um i, I forgot my initial question but how would you make any of the strains that you have right now better and what do you feel makes cannabis good? Like what qualities of cannabis make it good? Like when you tell somebody like, oh, there's some good shit. Like what does that mean specifically for you? Yeah, so um, for me, like, you know, back to our original conversation, the, the tolerance um, uh, breaks is not something I'm really too concerned about. So I, I'm not always looking for something that has super high THC. I'm in the same boat as Spartan in the sense that, you know, I like the, the terpenes and, and the flavors. And I mean, specifically, I, I, I really like to, uh, I really um, kind of gauge the different cultivars that I have in different phenos based on the aromas that I get as they, as they ripen. You know, I love, I love smelling that and, uh, um, and keep the ones that really appeal to me uh, the most as a cultivator, I guess, um, aside from, um, you know, those aromas. Um, I do, I, I kind of lean towards uh, a higher yielding pheno. I like, uh, I, I look at the bud structure and I just, uh, you know, I'd be lying if I didn't say that I just love the ones that have a very nice visual uh, appeal or what my, some might call bag appeal and what have you. So um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not a huge fan of the, the, the more lanky and, and leggy uh, cultivars. I like ones that are a little bit stockier and have the nice, uh, a nice bud structure and that are uh, a higher yielding plant, at least from a cultivation point of view. Now what's your, like, if you had to, it's like picking uh, your favorite child or something, if you have multiple, but I know you've got more than one mother plant right now. What's your favorite of your keepers? 
uh, right now it's uh, you know I I have this um, I have the strawberry banana that I've been that I've been growing and uh, um, I really love the way that uh, it's a toss up between that strawberry banana and that MK Ultra that I have going right now. I'm really happy with those and uh, um, but uh, those so if I had to pick right now those would be the two. I've been following your grows with that strawberry banana and it looks frosty as hell, which makes sense because everybody I know who makes hash loves the strawberry banana because it's a great hash producer. So um, with that one, I know that it's newish to your garden, but uh, if you could improve it in, in one way, what would you do to make it better? Man, that's a, that's a really great question. And one that I don't, I don't think that I can, uh, um, I can answer Right now, just because, uh, well, as you know, you know, I'm just, I'm just doing the, uh, finishing the first run, although I do have another couple runs already that I'm starting with it. Um, so I think I, I can't answer that with that, but what I can tell you what I am trying, you know, I'm, I am trying uh, with my short veg periods, I'm trying a couple of different, uh, training methods just to see how I might be able to, uh, maximize the yield run with that without um you know damaging or sacrificing the quality um uh, but they are really strong genetics at least that's what it appears to be so i'm not as concerned about that so maybe that's what i'm i'm kind of dialing in to see um you know what the ideal veg time is um to get the most out of my particular setup i'm trying to play around with the nutrient lineups that i'm using to see what uh what ECs I should be using to get the most out of it. But like I said, I won't know that until I've done a few different runs. And, uh, and obviously I'm also playing around with the mother plants just to see um, what, uh, how I can dial that in to make sure that I'm getting the best uh, uh, and quickest root and cuttings that I can from it. So there's a bunch of different things I'm playing around, not just with that cultivar, but with all of the ones that I'm, that I'm growing right now. And as you, if you, I, I know you follow along, I, I just started I just popped those Sunday drivers back crosses. So I'm excited about that too. So it's just an ongoing process for me. hundred percent germination rate, man. That's a uh, good stuff. I was excited to see that because uh, Sunday driver has got one of my favorite cultivars, Fruity Pebbles OG in its lineage and lots of flavor. Canarado is, we were talking about vetting breeders earlier and I'd say Canarado is one of the more reputable breeders who's putting out some of the uh, shinier new crosses that I'd actually be interested in. A lot of people smack this and that together and, uh, they have like this purple punch cross to 13 different things or whatever, but you never know if it's going to be good or not. But that Canarado, man, it seems like whatever they put out or a lot of the stuff they're putting out seems to be really, really good. Uh, yeah. I got, I got out. that, that peanut butter that they got that I'm going to be popping in a bit. And then I have that max stomper that's uh, that I just put in uh, that I put an order for. And then of course our own uh, uh, pea breedings. I got uh, that new England rock candy that I'm really excited to run. Cause I've seen, some of our uh, um, some of our uh, chat uh, people growing sour diesel tangent will have uh, so uh, I'm I'm excited about those too. Yeah, shout out to the New Year's Grow Off, uh, Dr. MJ and CocoaForCannabis.com. There, a lot of people over there growing uh, pea breeding or pr- predicative breeding genetics, and a uh, new bud tender just had a harvest recently with one of Kyle's genetics. So I'd like to hear Kyle's opinion here. What do you find uh, to be qualities that make cannabis good? Like what makes you say, damn, that's some good shit. And um, of your keepers that you've got around right now, what would you do to improve them? Well, I think what I wanted 
before this all started and, and after probably two different things uh, i was on like this uh trichome search uh you know because unfortunately uh visual things sell but as i was going through different cultivars and and, and how they were just turning out and stuff like that I, i've come to realize uh you know it's kind of like a, a whole package thing like i'm not a, into the whole even if it was like super fire all the sugar leaves are pure iced out but like it's tall and lanky and there's just like you know buds certain bud sites and or there's like eight to ten inch gaps between the two sites like i'm not really into that and um i'm sure they serve a purpose for some things and i, I know some people call that connoisseur weed but you can kind of you can almost do the same thing with just a better breeding program into you know different yielding cultivars <laughs> but uh for me what, what i'm looking for now and what i've been trying to uh you know gear more towards is having like a like a heavy basically like something in like the kush family that's just like real heavy and then using that to cross into things so you have a, a better probability especially if it's a, a a dominant trait of having uh turnouts where the yields are like very well and you're and you're pulling traits from what you crossed into um you know or whatever different cultivars like maybe a, a lime flavored one or a, you know whether it be terpene or whatever you're trying to chase or even like calyx size and, and stuff like that so for me it's it's yield now and i'm just trying to incorporate um terpenes so like, like i don't i don't really deal with plants that don't have like a nice um greasy uh you know we've talked about this last time where when you rub the stem if it's almost like you put lotion on your fingers i'm kind of looking for stuff like that which is like really really terpy and, and greasy um, and obviously, you know, visual to me does matter because some flowers are just like real uh, leaf heavy, leaf to flower ratio, and I'm not really too into that. So I try and if, if that kind of pops up, I try not to really use those because te that tends to carry forward. Uh, and some people call that a recessive gene, but it's just uh, just part of its genome. Are um, any of the ones you're working with now dealing with that? And are you trying to breed away from them, or have you pitched in, in favor of the less leafy? Yeah, I mean, there's some. <clears throat> There's a couple of plants that uh, tend to do that once in a while. Certain, a couple like uh, even rock candy once in a great while will we'll throw one that's I wouldn't say like real leaf heavy, but it's a little more sativa leaning. Um, but she has qualities in herself like you know beautiful uh, foxtails towards the end and these massive swelled calyxes that aren't, aren't really prevalent on most you know a lot of cannabis. Uh, <clears throat> um, yeah, I mean. Uh, I do have some, but I, I try to try to stay away from that. I mean, again, I think we all go back to, uh, I'm sure we all have plants that we really like, but it's really like, what's, what's the most important thing to try and move forward in the program? Because I mean, everything that we grow, we all are completely most of the time in love with and we think it should go through, but uh, to hold a genetic library like that would be uh, just unpractical. Um, but yeah, I have some things right now, like, you know, so rock candy, you know, I've been finally getting a lot of pictures from all these people, um, that's since the business has been live now on, on my website and I've seen a lot of good things, man. You know, uh, it's just, uh, I'm just pretty happy with the way things have been turning out. Um, so not to like toot my own horn, but if anybody's looking for seeds, pbreeding.com, <laughs> I'd appreciate it. Hey, it's a perfect time to shout it out. Cause I've seen sour diesel tangy, one of our listeners, longtime listener. He tags almost all of us in the uh, panel on a lot of his posts. He's killing it, man. He's just absolutely rocking it out with your genetics. His stuff's looking great. And new bud, new bud tender is another one who I think just had a recent harvest of your genetics, and it looks pretty awesome. So, I think uh, DC Grows has some really nice ones too. Yeah, shout yeah, out to yeah. them. Yeah, there's been I've been getting random, and so like obviously I don't know all these people's names. So like I I have random people tagging me now too that I don't even know, and they're just like, hey, check this out. I'm like, and I don't know which plant it is because they didn't really say anything, but. uh 
obviously they eventually tell me, but it's just that, yeah, everything seems to be, uh, you know, obviously, so I don't like, my programs aren't like pure, strictly iced out plants. Like, you know, cause a lot of those it's in order to achieve that for every run and not to be, you know, my biggest thing at first was to have herm free traits and then start breeding into quality. Um, and also, so eventually I'll be able to keep what I have and just it, basically I can just improve the quality at this point, but I mean, everything I have it are like pretty, pretty decent yielders so far. Uh, so I'm, I'm just, I'm just really happy for uh, the turnout and the way things are going. I'm glad to see that too. And uh, we'll go to Noah, the grower last before I introduce Dr. MJ who just got into the show. Um, so Noah, what qualities of cannabis do you find that you say that was some really good cannabis? Uh, and if you have any keepers, what would you do to improve them if you could? Well, I, uh, I always go for taste. Uh, number one, and then trichome production. Um, I'm kind of old school like that. I'll, I'll figure out a plant, you know, I'll, I'll scrog it. I'll lollipop it up really, really high. I'll put um, three floor plants under, you know, a four by four spot. I'll put um, bigger, uh, like seven gallon pots. I'll veg longer. I'll backlog. I'll do different things to, uh, I'll defoliate. I'll, uh, you know, tie stuff down on top of the scrog net. I'll do things to figure out how to get yield, but I, I mean, I got to have stuff that tastes good and that can produce trichomes. That's the number one for me. Thank you so much for your input, Noah. I think those are uh, a few really good things. A lot of people on the panel, if you notice, when we went around said taste. And for the listeners, I think when you're going to select a cultivar, that might be something to keep in mind because a lot of uh, the growers on the panel said that's one of their top things, if not their very first thing that matters most about them with their cannabis. So consider flavor when you're selecting. And with that said, we have Dr. MJ joining us. So go ahead and give us your introduction, Doc. Hey, guys. Yeah, sorry I am late today. Um, it's my wife's birthday, and she wanted to get up into the mountains. So we went for a drive around and a little walk up there. Um, but yeah, Dr. MJ Coco um, from CocoForCannabis.com. And I'm happy to be joining in. And I will, yeah, I'll, I'll throw my weight behind taste. Um, I think that... Uh, Taste is certainly, it's also related to effect, I think. Um, totally, totally. So, yeah, it's one of the ways that I gauge things. But all my favorite strains are strains that uh, taste really well. And I have one now that has such a strong lemon taste that I sort of mix it in with a few others um, just to sort of bring that, those terpenes into um, my other sort of vapes. I really appreciate your uh, input on that one. And I know that you're more of a perpetual seed popper. Do you have any clones or keepers that you're hanging around? Or are you still going from seed every time? Yeah, no, I'm, I just don't have the the space to keep um, to keep mothers or to keep plants going like that in veg. So I've always run out from seeds. When I grow from clones, I usually go to dispensaries and get clones, but I haven't done that in a while either. So I've been on seeds for quite a while. I respect that. And uh, before Kyle goes, I noticed he just typed in the side chat he's going to stay as long as he can past eight um but i am because one of our questions that's coming up next is talking about when designing a grow space uh talking about the importance of electrical connections and keeping in mind uh how much electricity you're going to need and, and how to build it out so i was curious i know kyle you work in the electrician field or a little bit you have electrical experience i should say so i was curious if you have any tips or pieces of advice for people that are looking to get into setting up a cannabis cultivation whether small scale or you know whatever the case may be yeah well i guess first things first so i've been doing uh, electrical since i was 19 i'm 32 now <clears throat> um but yeah i mean first things first is uh if you don't know what you're doing please don't touch it uh please find i know electricians are 
unless you have a friend, they're pretty costly, like 80, 90 bucks an hour on a decent day. Um, but yeah, I mean, if, uh, 90 bucks an hour is better than burning your house down. I'll say that to everybody who's listening. If you don't know I guess, uh, uh, how to do it. I guess the second thing that I would say is uh, if anybody does have any questions, please feel free to reach out to me and I'll be more than happy to, uh, to help them. Uh, you can ask Jack. I'm, I'm not, so there's a difference between uh, DC circuits, um, you know, and uh, low voltage, which it isn't a dramatic difference, but I'm definitely more of an AC guy. So you're, you're 120 or 240 volt power and stuff like that. But if anybody does have any questions, feel free to reach out about hooking something up. And, you know, if you want to take a picture and send it to me, I can definitely guide you the right way. Um, but this the is big a... thing is the so grounding. So the bare wire or the copper wire that doesn't really have insulation on it or the green wire, depending on what you're using for wire, um, you know, you definitely want to incorporate that. You don't need the ground wire for things to run at all. That was added in the code book later on for protection purposes, and it does help. Basically, uh, electricity wants to find the closest path, path to ground, and uh, that's what that ground wire does because it basically it goes out through and there's a ground rod that somebody jammed into the earth uh, when they put your service in, or there should be one at least. And so if there's ever a problem in your grow room, uh, it will directly go out and dissipate into the earth. Um, so you kind of definitely want to incorporate your ground wire and stuff like that and not try and bypass it. Um, other than that, I mean, just uh, I don't I don't want to give too much advice on to tell people how to do things and something backfires, but um, just uh, no, no, sure I respect that. And, uh, yeah, just just do your diligence. Make sure you do your research. If you have questions, uh, again, you know, I'm, I'm always I tell people to always reach out to me, but sometimes uh, they don't. But uh, I'm more than happy to help people if anybody has any questions. But just just be careful and uh, you know look in the that gives me a chance. I know Shane asked me to plug this, but in the future, uh, I think maybe all the panelists or any panelists that are interested are going to have a spot on Shane's website where if you'd like to do some professional private consulting, whether it's for cultivation or electrical work, like with uh, predicative breeding, or if you wanted to do some IPM things with uh, Sync Angel or Matt Gates from Xenthanol, or just uh, small home cultivation from somebody like myself, uh, we're going to be offering some private consulting that would be paid services um, and you can work out a price with that person that might be a little bit more affordable or accessible. Uh, we can access you through like using something like this, like a Zoom video chat. And for some people that meet, need a little bit more than just like a DM question or answer, uh, we're gonna be making that available coming soon on the Cheap Home Grow website. Not to be uh, too much of a sellout though, I wanna keep on going with the show because another listener reached out and asked how to make a compost tea from start to finish. And Spartan Grown, I know you used to do compost teas, but you've since stopped, I, if I remember correctly, because you don't use a microscope. But um, just because I want to give somebody else a chance to talk, and I don't know if there's any other organic compost tea brewers here on the panel, could you give them a, a little step-by-step walkthrough on how to brew a compost tea? Yep, I definitely can. Uh, and then after that, I somehow got a DM from somebody for a question for Dr. Coco. So after I'm done, I'll uh, shoot it over to him. But uh, which was funny. But so compost teas, the, the, let me give you the reason why I don't do compost teas now. And it's because I realized that I don't know what I'm doing as far as I don't, I don't, I don't know how to check my final product to tell if my final brew is a beneficial or a detrimental brew. So that's why I don't do it. What I would need would be a microscope and the knowledge on how to identify anaerobic or uh, uh, aerobic or parasitic, like uh, nematodes, things like that. So uh, knowledge I don't have, but I could easily get online 
and I just don't have the microscope right now at this time. So I've stopped doing it. As far as uh, how to do it, it's fairly easy. You can, I usually always use a five gallon bucket. I used uh, an air pump with two of your, your standard air stones. There's not the best option, but it's the cheap option. Uh, obviously you can go really expensive and get into some different airlift designs and all kinds of, I mean, you can look into the compost tea world and, and you'll, you'll run into all that information. But as far as that, I just throw those two air stones in at least two air stones. I used a big pump. It was actually, I had a manifold of like eight different where I could run eight different air stones, but I just ran everything to, through the two and it got really big bubbles. And then I ran a tea bag. Um, shout out to Skilbo. He has a tip that, what was it? There's a bag you can get that on milk it. bag. Yeah. The nut milk bag super cheap and you can just throw all your you can throw it's like a cup of compost uh, i like to use different compost so if i had my uh, like a, a cup i was never really crazy about having to measure it too much but about a cup of compost from the compost pile about a cup of compost from the worm bin and um, then all you're going to need at that point is a sugar source uh, for those because all we're doing is with the, the motion of the water it's almost like you're doing almost like bubble wash you know bubble hash you're, you're just trying to agitate the microbes off of the organic material get them into the water and then you got to have something for them to eat so they multiply that's what the mm -hmm. whole brewing cycle is for so a little bit of sugar and when i mean a little bit of sugar i mean a little bit of sugar people go crazy with molasses like doing two three tablespoons when one tablespoon could do you know, hundreds of gallons. So I'm talking a drop, two drops of molasses. You don't need a lot. And um, especially when I'm talking about a five gallon bucket and uh, just let it rip. Uh, I actually wrote down times from different research people that I did and they're saying for compost tea time of, and this is not what most people do. You'll see most people do like 24 hours or less, 30 to 36 hours is where they found the most luck with a little bit of a fungal dominance. So when you're going into flower, do those extra long brews. It's pretty, you want to stay within that, that time frame pretty religiously between 30 and 36 hours because it's all got to do with the air to water ratio and how quickly these microbes will uh, multiply with the food source. If you're worried that you're, see, and it's hard because you don't have a way to check it unless you have a microscope and the knowledge, but if you're worried that the, you could adjust the food sources where I was going to get into next more or less with the thickening. If you're seeing that your, your teas aren't very effective, like you're not seeing life in it, you know, that that's probably not enough food source. So, but you got to have a microscope. So it's better, especially for the average gardener. I know everybody will just wing it and they get generally good results, which yeah, you, you probably will. But the one time that you brew an anaerobic tea and you kill your plants, you're going to be mad about it. And it didn't happen to me. I'm not saying that happened to me, but it scares me. So, you know, as I researched into it deeper, I realized how much I didn't know about it and I just didn't want to screw it up. So that's where I'm at with that. Um, I respect that. I don't have a microscope either, but in my experience, like you had mentioned, it, it sort of was always positive. And uh, I didn't stick within those brew times because I do different brews of different things. Um, but I really do agree with like the worm castings are great for composties. I like to add a little bit of an alfalfa and a very small amount of a sugar source, uh, whatever it is. Like you said, it, people do tend to overdo that one. Let's see, that's a different tea that I will do is um, now when you start making a nutrient tea, that's a little pet peeve of mine. There's a difference. Now, I was talking about 
I'm brewing microbes. I'm looking for a microbe tea. But um, when you start throwing food sources in there, like uh, alfalfa, like that's high in nitrogen. Um, now you start talking about a nutrient tea. Now you're not so much worried about the microbes. They're just there to break that down. And now you're worried about NPK ratios and all the other things. And those are like two different things. Like when I see people brewing like a microbe tea, but then throwing in five other ingredients, I'm like, man, you're doing, you're doing two things at once. Why take the, take the compost out and just do your nutrient thing. Uh, if that's what you want to do, or, you know, both together, I'm not a big fan of, cause now you're, you've got different food sources that break down at different rates that encourage different microbe species. And now really without a microscope, you're really scaring me at that point. So as you add more things into the potion, we'll say you're having more places where you can fail, I guess. Is you want to talk about you want to talk about weird things. You want to talk about uh, microbes and not being able to tell. You know, especially for bacteria. Like there's this there's this thing called natural competence, and that's when bacteria or other microorganisms can just take up free DNA from the environment that that they come across, or or they can either horizontally transfer their DNA with like the same species or even different species. And I think that's very scary because I think cultivation, you get like the Galapagos Island sort of situation with Darwin finches where like everyone's brewing a different thing, but like, you know, over the span of selection pressure for cultivation, you might come, you might kind of facilitate um, an interaction where you might get like a really resistant bacteria that's detrimental or maybe a mutation happens you know it is very complex and even if you had a microscope while you can tell some things morphologically um, there's a reason why microbiologists have moved from morphology to like genetic sequencing and that's one of the reasons and for the listeners that's because it's genetic sequencing is more accurate some things will look identical under a microscope and it takes genetic sequencing to identify the difference between one and the other where one may be beneficial and one may be harmful. So I definitely respect like the acknowledgement that that's a very complex and nuanced thing. And I think that in the future, we'll be using microbes uh, with, with more sophisticated technologies um, in a way that I think will be more manageable. But I think that it's prudent, especially in the wake of what's been going on recently, to like kind of respect that, like the invisible nature of, some of these mutations and changes can be very rapid and nobody nobody will notice until the effects happen. Yeah, microscopic things can cause death of plants and humans if we're not careful and, and monitoring them properly. Or just changes. Look at the lot, you know, the hops latent virus. I don't even like saying that word around my plants, but I mean Yeah. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah, that stuff when you see the healthy plant versus the one that has it, it's just like really sad to see the finished product that has the hop latent virus. It's like such a sad shell of its uh, potential that it could have been but hey i want to read this question for so i can shut my phone off before it dies but <laughs> this question was for dr coquelin came from uh instagram will 2279 he's uh he said i'm going to cut through this first part he's basically saying he wants me to ask dr coco a question he knows that you grow in cocoa and he agrees with how you say to up pot the plants but uh -huh. he's but his question is about he's growing organic soil and he says, but what if you're using organic, but what if you're an organic grower using soil, you aren't going to get as big of a plant. Do you still recommend starting in say a one gallon pot and then transplanting up to a five and then a seven final pot? 
And if so, about what day or week do you recommend transplanting? Well, the day or week part is tough um, because it depends on the rate of growth, really. But yes, I think that um, transplanting is even more important in a soil grow. Um, and I, I don't know, I'd be interested for, for you guys that they grow regularly in soil, but um, starting in smaller containers just makes watering seedlings so much easier and, and sort of uh, allows the roots to grow. Um, the benefits that we get in cocoa, you actually get more benefits from that in soil because cocoa already does a better job of sort of maintaining a, a better air to water ratio. But in either media, um, the, the media can get super saturated and require sort of time to, to dry out if you're putting sort of too big of a pot and there's not enough roots pulling out the water. Um, and it does a lot of the same sort of uh, root training purposes. So I, I got I go into this in my um, transplanting article. There's a difference, I think, with in being in soil. Um, I would go to a larger second step. I stay really small in my transplant sort of sequence when I'm in cocoa. I go from like pint size containers up to half gallon containers. Um, and then from there, usually into finals, um, which are just about three and a half gallons. Um, but in soil, you'd want to aim for a larger final pot. Otherwise, you'll end up with smaller plants. Um, and so usually the second step would be like a two gallon pot. Um, so I would go from a, a pint sized container with a seedling up to like a two gallon pot for the second. And in no matter sort of what kind of plants you're growing or what kind of media you're growing in, you want to stay in each container until the roots have sort of fully colonized that media. Um, and so they should be holding the media together basically during the, the transplant sequence. Um, so it's tough to say a number of days, particularly. I'd also sort of push back on some of the metrics that are often used, like when the leaves reach the edge of the pots, that's I mean, these are all sort of proxy measurements. What really matters is that the roots have colonized. Um, we kind of need to use proxy measures because you can't directly inspect the roots, but it, it's usually better to wait a little bit longer than to try to transplant too soon. A clear um, solo cup instead of a red solo cup is a way to inspect the roots. And there's also a, a thing called easy swap pots now. It's sort of like yeah. a Chinese food takeout box that you can snap it open and see if the root. Well, see, that's also... Yeah, the Chinese food box thing is is better because you see if the media starts to really fall apart. Just seeing the roots at the edges is not a good indication. So if you have um, the clear, and this is the same thing that happens in the fabric seedling bags when the roots grow through the bags, um, because roots go to that space first. They go to the edges first, and they go to the bottom of the container first. Um, and that doesn't mean that they've colonized that media fully yet. So um, seeing roots along the edges or seeing roots even coming out of the fabric seedling bags is not in and of itself indication that it's time to pot up. Um, if you're in seedling bags or in, 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 um, in solo cups, I think a fairly good um, sort of rule to go by is to get past the third node. Um, generally, by the time plants are, are sort of pushing past their third node, um, the roots will have fully colonized the solo cup. Um, but I definitely keep coming across people using this metric of the leaves reach the edges of the seedling cup. 
of the solo cup. And that's, I mean, almost every single one of those is transplanting early, in my opinion. Um, the plants aren't fully ready for that. I got a question from the chat and they asked what I think about the, uh, me and the panel think about the dark period before the harvest. And I'll say this, I know for a fact, these two facts I do know about it. One, it saves electricity. That's undeniable, right? If you have dark days before your chop versus running the light before the chop. Uh, and two, it doesn't kill the plant. It doesn't make the plant hermy, at least in my experience. It doesn't have a super negative detrimental effect. And I start off with these two facts because those are things that I can guarantee and assure people. What I cannot guarantee is the next part of the conversation, which a lot of people talk about. Does it increase potency? I think the jury is still out. There's been some data that suggests THC might go up after X amount of time, but I've also seen information that says terpenes go down during the dark period. So depending on how you categorize your potency, whether it's just THC or whether you're factoring in the amount of terpenes, I think that those things are still to be researched and uh, I'm really curious about them. But I think for the saving electricity and for not killing the plant, a lot of people are going to try it and have happy results. I do this. Um, and so, yes, I have a biased opinion. I, I used to not, and I do it now because I tried both ways in, in my empirical evidence. And maybe if I just harvest in, in the complete darkness, the, you know, 10 minutes before the lights come on, it would have a similar effect to this. But let's think about this just logically in our mind. You know, if, you know, in a, in a warmer room, we would expect to lose, more, you know, flash off more terpenes and uh, I, I don't think cannabinoids, well, I don't, I don't think there's any cannabinoids that flash off at low, lower temperatures, but there's definitely terpenes and there's definitely probably flavonoids and who knows what other compounds that we're not even tracking. So if you can keep the plant cooler and cooler temperatures with the lights off, because the lights add heat, um, it's only going to preserve that. It's almost like, you know, sticking in the refrigerator, it's, you know, that's not the greatest analogy, but I think just the aspect of the heat, that there's less heat by keeping it in the dark. You're preserving a lot more and than light. Those. Light oxidizes cannabinoids yeah, and terpenes effectively. Too. Yeah, I was going to say that too. It's not just the heat. The light does directly affect the cannabinoids. But the only thing that's weird to me is I saw the lost leaf of the guy from Michigan. He used PSI labs and all of his stuff that went in the dark period, the most terpy was the one that like was chopped right after lights out. And then like 12 hours later, he lost uh, X percent. 24 hours later, he lost more percent. And that could be because it wasn't a perfect experiment. He wasn't running like 10 clones in a climate controlled room where they all have the same exact environment. Like he was taking a cut from this plant or a part of this plant, this and that. So it wasn't exactly, he's going to rerun it again to try and make better variables. But I'm with you Spartan. In my experience, I've noticed a little bit more flavorable plant. Maybe it's just a placebo effect or anecdotal experience. But I think that if it doesn't hurt and it's saving you money, uh, it's definitely something worth trying. Yeah. Yeah, I, I run the dark period as well for about usually less than 48 hours, um, but usually more than 24. And at that point, it's just sort of dependent on when I can physically fit harvesting the plants into my daily schedule. Um, and, and I agree with you, Jack. I don't think you're going to do much harm at that stage. I, I also don't think it's going to sort of be the, the key thing that brings, you know, everything back or covers up for other mistakes earlier on. If there is a benefit, it's going to be pretty marginal. Um, one people often ask if we need to water during that dark period, um, and I would say no. 
Um, if you're running fertigation, you should already have a really low electrical conductivity at that point because you've been flushing. Um, and once you've sort of got the, the fertilizers out of the water, um, any media, soil or cocoa, any media will hold on to plenty of water to just provide water to the plant during that period. So you can forget about having to continue to water the plants once they enter the dark period. And I also think there's uh, similarly like poorly um, evidenced studies that suggest that dryness at the end of harvest can increase like resin production and THC as well. So if you're going to err on anything, erring on the side of dry just to avoid botrytis and powdery mildew is a good thing. And there's some limited data that's just drier may actually uh, increase potency. So erring on the side of dry by not watering your medium, whether it's soil or uh, cocoa, the soil uh, evidence that I've talked about, like they've found in lavender places that have more drought stress have more uh, terpene rich lavender for linalool and linalool is a terpene found in cannabis. And I found with uh, that University of Guelph study in Canada, there was some evidence that showed drought in cannabis can also increase THC and other cannabinoid production as well as terpene production and yield uh, very slightly on yield, just a tiny, tiny increase in the dry flower yield. But it's, it's a, I think overall, like, like just with the darkness, like if it's not killing your plant, saving you water, saving the time of watering it, and it's making it easier to regulate that environment and not have to pull out all that RH. It, it is I mean? one of those things though, Jack, that if you do it wrong, I mean, I agree with you. If you do it right, you could get those kinds of benefits. But it, it's certainly one of these things that if you do it wrong, you could cost yourself in all of those areas as well. And I, I think for that reason, it becomes a, a pretty risky gambit, not at the end, not right before harvest. And I agree with some of the comments that are coming up in, in chat here that you don't need to, har to water um, leading into the harvest. Um, Trout stressing earlier, I, I agree, there, there's something there, but you're, uh, you're, you're playing with something that could also bite you. I totally agree with that because uh, like I always mention, it, it's one of those things that can actually kill your plant if you don't get to it soon enough after a drought stress, like you can literally just have them die on you. Yeah. Uh, another question of listener reached out and Shane posted this in our like ideas for the show. Um, if you're growing in a small city or environment where you have neighbors close by or you have family members who don't like the smell or you need to be stealth if you have kids for whatever reason, um, does anybody want to talk about maybe how to keep their grow uh, stealth and not have your neighbors or anybody go into it. And a lot of us are growers, so we have pretty obvious ideas in mind, but for the listeners who may be new or uh, haven't had to go through these types of things, maybe they have a lot of land uh, and are moving into a city. What are some tips and benefits or tricks to not get caught while you're growing your own, even if it's legal in your area? Well, tip number one is to, uh, don't tell anybody. Uh, they say for every single person you tell, that they tell 10 people, um, I, I, you know, I'm lucky to be in this type of format, you know, there's some type of an amenity, but I, I wouldn't tell anybody, uh, any of your friends that, you know, I think that's a huge mistake that a lot of girls make that I made early on that I was warned about not doing that I did. Um, as far as smell, I mean, you know, obviously you can get carbon filters, there's different things you can do, but, um, yeah, the number one tip I would give new growers is to, uh, don't tell anybody about it. It's it's really exciting and you want to talk about it. So what I would suggest is if you're not going to tell anybody in person, that's a, a great idea. You might want to do something like myself and others. If uh, you don't have an Instagram or you have a personal Instagram, you can make a cannabis related account so that like nobody knows who you are. Just make it anonymous, some random name or whatever, and you can post your cannabis photos there if you're looking for advice and things like that. Yeah, and it will help you. Come cannabis forum or chat room and, and talk with us there. Exactly. That's what all of that stuff is for, to give us a, a place to 
to socialize, right? Because you not be like at work, like, oh, by the way, I grow cannabis. And then like that person turns you into your boss or whatever, or like tells everybody else. And then they like come over to your house and try and steal your plants or something. So the no, no telling is a great one. I want to shout out to Percy's grow room and uh, UK grow room videos. Those guys over uh, Shane does the growing with my fellow lads and they have a quote, they say no smell, no tell, no sell. And that's how in the UK they get away with growing without ever getting caught because if they can't smell it you don't tell anybody about it and you're not selling it it's gonna be really difficult for them to figure out that you're growing and uh carbon filters i totally agree with no other grow are a great option can can grow do you have any options or uh, suggestions for how to be maybe courteous to your neighbor neighbors or be stealthy in your growing well i think it you know it's obviously much easier to be stealthy if you're uh scaled down uh grow um, it becomes increasingly more difficult to keep it stealthy uh, the larger your grow is. Um, but, uh, you know, there's, there's just different things. You know, if you're going to be ordering things to get delivered to you, you're going to want to be mindful of what the packaging is like. And, you know, uh, some of these, uh, some equipment, if you're ordering, it's going to be large. So it, it, you got you to gotta know your environment outside. If you got really nosy neighbors who might be wondering what's going on, I think you got to be, you got to think ahead. You got to think about how you're going to dispose of things that uh, you're going to be disposing of um, because that could draw attention to you. Um, You know, a lot of people will make sure that they tape up the windows on the inside so people can't see, but make sure that that visibly on the outside, it doesn't look like it's... uh, you know, taped up, but, uh, I mean, there's any number of things you, you just have to know, um, what, uh, what things in your particular area, uh, could draw attention, but no, the growers, right. I mean, the easiest first thing to do is just not tell anyone. And as we're talking about this, one of the things that could cause problems, I just, I know, uh, Kyle, unfortunately had to leave, but, you know, back to the electrical talk is make sure that you're being safe about your grow. I mean, I got, I agree. Um, don't touch your electrical if you don't know what you're doing. Um, I know you mentioned, you know, $90 an hour is a, to not burn your house down. It's way better investment to not burn yourself up because you could do that too if you're going to start touching your electrical. Uh, but one thing I can say with that is make sure that uh, you have at least a basic understanding of how much electricity you're using at the outlet, because if you, uh, most, uh, I can't speak for other areas in the States or I know here in Canada, where most of my house is a 15 amps, uh, per, uh, uh, per breaker. So normally in a house, you'll have several outlets that are attached to that amp. Um, there are some outlets, uh, that are dedicated. So you'll have like, you know, in your kitchen, your stove and your, uh, um, all of those will have dedicated breakers that are like 30, 40 amps or dryer, washer, but most of the other uh, uh, breakers are going to be 15 amp breakers. So you got to understand if you're going to be running a grow, um, you can't be using any, the safe, uh, safe amount is 70% of the amperage of that breaker on a regular basis for an extended period of time. So for example, you're probably going to be using most amperage uh, on during the lights on period. So if you're using more than 70% or excess of 80%, where it gets more dangerous because it's a lot of heat, um, you're going to trip your breaker, which is going to, uh, which is to your benefit because it will save you. But 
over time, if you keep tripping it, it, you'll wear out your breaker. It's better off to make sure that you're running different equipment from uh, different breakers. You don't need to know much about electricity to, uh, you know, you don't need to know about uh, much about electrical to be able to do that. You just need to know which outlets are connected to which breakers. And you can do that simply by just shutting your breakers off and see which outlets go off, but make sure that you know. And so, and the best way to know that is um, first off, you got to know if you're in a 120 amp area or if you're in a, uh, or sorry, 120 volts or 220. And then you take the number of watts and divide that by the number of, uh, uh, volts in your area, and they'll tell you how many amps. So, for example, a 630 watt—it's just a ballpark, but 630 watt fixture uh, ceramic metal halide fixture that I'm running runs at about 5.5 amps because I'm in 120 volts. You just—you got to do that math ahead of time, or else you could cause a fire hazard. And you know, if you start doing things wrong with that, then you'll attract the wrong attention, also. And then you know, so you got to make cell growers really look bad. Like, too. If, if you mess up with that kind of stuff, it sort of makes all growers like home grow is a lot of big corporations are pushing to make it just corporate cannabis. And anybody who like burns down their house or electrocutes themselves, they're a statistic that people who are lobbying against us to take away our rights are going to point to. So you really got to be responsible with these kinds of things. And uh, it's very important. And what CanCan was talking about with not overloading your breaker, knowing also what high powered um, utilities you might be using in your home, like vacuum cleaners, uh, blow dryers, microwave ovens, uh, toaster ovens that might be electric, things like that can also increase a lot of the uh, stress on the electrical load on whatever circuit you're running. So make sure that those are like connected to different circuits. If, if you're growing, you don't want to overload it because you turn it on your microwave to cook yourself something, you know, those yeah. types of things are important. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, if you know your grow tent setup is below that 70%, but then you have other outlets that are attached to that then you know you could be tripping the breaker and that's you know that's the one thing so just be mindful of that because it's a safety issue and also uh, could be a stealth issue too i got two more questions um can i just chime in on this one oh yeah, yeah go ahead um just to sort of you know it, it depends on the size of the operation that you're running here too and i think that that you guys are thinking really about at least a four by four ten fully lit at that point you're at like you could be at 600 plus watts just for the lighting um or, or sort of a larger home grow space you know if you're running like a, a three by three or two by four or two by two tent um you're much less likely to have to to really be concerned with these things you should still be aware of how much electricity you're drawing on a circuit especially if you're doing other things like air conditioners and dehumidifiers or anything else running on that same circuit but um and older uh, homes older yeah homes or older homes right but i think a lot of growers if they're running a two by four tent and they're only pulling you know 300 watts or less um they're not going to run into or they they don't need to be sort of as concerned about the electrical issues um 300 watts really isn't a, a, a tremendous amount of electricity yeah i agree it's it's a uh, pretty safe to get up and start with the lower wattage lights and does anybody else have anything on regards to stealth or uh, electrical stuff before we go on to our last few questions it sounds like uh not right now at least if you do, feel free to chime in. Um, one of the final questions I wanted to get into, somebody was talking a lot about, uh, it was Shane, actually, I think. He said, uh, we haven't really gone over uh, some flaws. A lot of times on Instagram, you see people that are having issues. 
uh, and they don't know whether they're having nutrient deficiencies or nutrient excess. Online shows will tell you everything. I'm quoting Shane right now uh, about being deficient. In all reality, a lot of the time, uh, these are issues of excess. So I'd like to go around the panel and just ask individually, if you see a problem with your plant, what do you do to diagnose it? Like if you see it yellowing in a leaf or something that's going on, what are your sort of like plan of attack? Like a, how do you go about correcting it or, or identifying what the actual issue is? I'll start with Spartan. Caught me eating some Easter candy. Um, oh yeah. <laughs> I'm, uh, I have a little book here. I'm going to shout it out too, because why not? It's the Mar- Marijuana Garden Saver by Ed Rosenthal. Ed there you go. That's the best diagnosis I have because even when the power's out, you can still have something to read. But uh, it's got a quick, it's got a pretty fairly good in-depth um, sections on not only pests, and um, but really, really good on nutrient deficiencies. And it's got pictures, pictures of actual marijuana leaves. Well, imagine that, cannabis leaves. And uh, so it's really good for identification and the explanations he puts in there. I really like that um, he'll tie in antagonists, you know, where like in the question that Shane was bringing up, a lot of times it's not that you have a deficiency. It's that another nutrient has locked that out. So you can put that in as much as you want and the plant's not going to uptake it. Um, Another good resource for that is Mulder's chart. If you Google Mulder's chart, it looks like a circle with all the, different nutrients around the outside and it has lines connecting which ones are antagonized the other. So it can at least give you an idea that, Hey, if I, if I think I have a potassium deficiency and I, if I'll, I'll look at that chart and say, okay, what happens? What can potassium lock out? So <laughs> I can look to see if I'm putting too much potassium on because it starts locking out other things. Um, little cheats like that, the book Mulder's chart, give me a leg up and uh, to diagnose stuff a lot quicker to give me like an avenue of attack. But in an organic situation, it's not often that I run into like a, a, um, a nutrient uh, deficiency that can't be just solved with like this blast it with some microbes. That's going to get some quick, easy nutrition. Um, so I guess I kind of cheat most of the time. If I run into any problem, I just start blasting it with microbes for a couple of days straight and it usually straightens out or, you know, a scoop if I'm in early early flower before week three or any veg, it's just going to get a scoop of worm castings and usually fix itself. <laughs> I also would add uh, some foliar of like a natural cow mag can be really effective for some plants that are looking a little bit hungry if they are actually in soil. Like in my solo cups, like Dr. MJ talked about earlier, when you first see the roots hit the sides of that plastic cup, a lot of people might want to transplant right then, but I usually wait a couple days after that before they start to like spiral, but while they're still like pretty solid developed down the sides of that cup, uh, because it gets that sort of strong mass within the cup. And I feel like it transplants out without falling apart a lot easier. But when I do that um, with the soil that I grow in, sometimes the larger plants get some of the lower leaves are a little bit yellow. And if I just roll through with, uh, I use heavy 16s, but there's a lot of different foliar products out there that are really good. You hit it with that foliar once or twice uh, throughout the week and everything's greened back up. And by the time it's in the new pot, it's got plenty of food and it's ready to go. Microbes are another great addition, like you had uh, mentioned. Noah Legroa, um, do you have some thoughts as far as this question? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, a couple tricks that I like to use because I grow in soil. Um, I, first off, I love the, 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 the Dixie cup thing 
where it got on the side. I like to have it even curled up on the side. I think it makes it the plant a little stronger. That's a little trick that I've just taught myself over the years. That's a great point. But uh, no, I like, um, you can always just get a little bit early in flower. If you see a little yellowing, to piggyback off a of Spartan Grown said sometimes, or, or I can't remember who said it, but when you can, you can be giving your plant too much nutrients. You'd be surprised how much if you've been just hitting your plant with fertilizer, 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 just a plain water only in dirt will just do wonders. Now, obviously, that's not going to solve everything. Sometimes CalMag, a little bit of CalMag, I like to reserve it. I don't just give it to my plants all the time. The nutrients that I, my, my uh, formula that I have has got usually enough, but sometimes it'll be a little bit, and I'll, and I'll give it some CalMag, but the water only, a little CalMag. And then uh, a little bit of uh, microbes too. So those are all, uh, yeah, that's pretty much what I go to. And then just, I can just kind of feel different plants, different strains, because I, I go from clones. So most of my plants I've had for a while, so I can kind of just spot it right away, you know, from feel of doing it before. It totally helps to know the plant. And I also would say it helps to know, um, like if you're growing in cocoa and Dr. MJ always recommends using like an EC meter, if you're airing on the side of low and you see that your plant's looking a little bit hungry, then you might bump up the nutrients a little bit and give it more. If you're airing on the side of like, oh, I'm pushing this plant. I heard it's a heavy feeder. So I'm like on the higher end of my range. I'm at the like 1.5 or whatever, two EC, even if you're trying to push it super hard and uh, yeah, dialing it back then. Yeah, yeah. I'd love to hear your feedback. Yeah. Yeah, because the, the one thing that I, I want to just say here is if you're suffering a micronutrient deficiency, it, it's very rare, especially in, in a cocoa grow. It could be more common in a, in a sort of super soil type of a grow, but it's very rare that the problem is an underdose. Um, the problem is either related to lockout or it's related to electrical conductivity or some other uptake issue. Um, so even if you've successfully diagnosed the issue as being a nutrient deficiency, it, it's really rare that the correct prescription then is to give more of that nutrient. Um, you need to, to consider. And so whenever I'm, I think about diagnosing, I actually did an episode of Growcast a while ago. So I really thought through um, this whole diagnosing plant sy um, symptoms but you want to make sure that you're even dealing with a nutrient issue. I think that uh, Spartan or, or Jack or both of you mentioned this as well. There's other things that it could be. So you want to kind of think about the, the big issues that could be affecting the plant, the climate, the light, um, pests. Uh, you know, sometimes pest issues look like nutrient deficiency issues. Um, it could be a root issue. Um, it could be something to do with the air water ratio or root stunting, or it could be a nutrient issue. Um, even once you've sort of successfully diagnosed it as a nutrient issue, um, you know, you need to think, and I, I urge growers to think about what they're doing. What could have provoked this? Is it possible that your pH had drifted off range? Is it possible that you screwed up mixing your nutrients or, or it didn't sort of provide something proper when you were mixing up your soils or other things like that? Um, so to, to sort of do that dialectic process where you're not just interrogating the plant systems, but you're also interrogating sort of the, the recent history of the plant and how you've been handling the plant to try to figure out um, what could have gone wrong there. That's great advice because whenever I get a DM and people are like, what's wrong with my plant? I'm never like calcium deficiency. I'm always like, 
how often are you watering it? What's the EC? What's your pH? Exactly. And what was the pH of your last feed? What was the EC of your runoff? And I, I'll ask all these annoying follow-up questions. They're probably like, Jack, just answer my fucking question. But I'm like, you know what? I need to know the information to give you an accurate response. And sometimes it's a little tedious with the back and forth. Like maybe I won't get to it. A half an hour exchange that would have been a two-minute conversation on the phone or whatever. Well, that's a great point because calcium deficiency, I could actually diagnose calcium deficiency sometimes. There's some really sort of telltale signs of calcium deficiency in leaves. And since I'm around it a lot in cocoa, but even that doesn't tell you what to do, right? So you need to understand that there's a difference, not you, Jack, but the growers out there need to understand there's a difference between diagnosing the problem and figuring out what you need to do about it. Because even if you've diagnosed a calcium deficiency, the media that you're growing in matters, the electrical conductivity that you're giving it matters. You know, a lot of growers end up with calcium deficiency late in flower. And the reason for that is that the phosphorus is, is locking out or blocking uptake of calcium. Um, and so, you know, providing more calcium isn't going to help. What you need to do is ease off the bloom booster. So there's a difference, even once you've diagnosed it as calcium deficiency, that doesn't necessarily tell you sort of what to do. And you, you kind of got to think back to what you have done differently. So if you suffer calcium deficiency and you've recently upped the dose of Bloom Booster, it, it's probably that, right? It's not that you need to give more CalMag. Totally agree, 100%. And uh, one thing that you mentioned a little earlier in your uh, comment was about it might not be a nutrient thing, it might be a pest thing. So with Matt, uh, our resident pest expert on the panel, I'd love to ask when you're looking at a plant and you start to see signs, I'd imagine in your head that you sort of think pests first. So when you start to see issues, um, transverse or do you think it's a pest? And then when you're crop scouting, like what do you look for? What are some telltale signs commonly in cannabis that might make you worry and wanna start looking for more issues? I just wanna echo in the beginning though, uh, uh, that people definitely want simple answers, right? And um, sometimes that's not possible. And a lot of times, like basic phytopathology, whether you're crop scouting or, you know, when you're crop scouting or even when you just find something in your crop, um, you know, unintentionally, you don't necessarily, there's a lot of problems that you can't necessarily tell simply by looking at them visually. Um, and a lot of biotic and abiotic, so like living and non-living uh, cause problems can look identical or pretty close. And so that's why it's really important to have that context. And, you know, that's why, you know, it's possible to do some things remotely through pictures and things, but sometimes you need to get uh, support work, laboratory tests or um, something to that effect. On the other hand, though, there are a ton of sort of like pest issues that have sort of unique damage. Um, or if you know the context, then you can kind of tell or you can actually see the pest itself, which is usually the best thing. Most of what I'm talking about before uh, has to do with like uh, pathogens, like people like very commonly people will see some sort of a weird sport mutation or mosaicism or variegation or something and they'll think it's a pathogen. Or the opposite, as uh, has often been found historically, people will see some sort of like uh, oddity and they'll assume it's sort of natural when in fact it's actually a virus or a bacterium or something like this. Um, when it comes to crop scouting, I think it's incredibly important to document things that are weird 
to you, things that are abnormal, if you have an idea of what normal should look like, which is really paramount. Um, and then so sort of sometimes you'll, you'll come across things that are like just because it has six legs or eight legs and it's in your plants doesn't mean that it's actually a detriment to them. It could be a predator organism. It could be some soil mite or uh, springtail. I get the most questions about springtails and, and soil predatory mites. Much more do I get questions about them than I get questions about um, organisms that are much more, at least from my perspective, overtly herbivorous and problematic from that perspective. And, and that just speaks to the fact that most people aren't bug people and that's totally cool. It keeps me employed. But the very same, you know, it's also like a thing that I try to reach out to people and educate on. And you can come across that information on my YouTube channel, Xenthanol. You know, uh, I have, that's why I put out a lot of those videos because there's like, it's video footage that people can compare with what they're seeing with like a field loop, some sort of lens um, or a microscope or something like that. And I found that just simple stuff like that has been very invaluable for people. Um, uh, and uh, becoming familiar with the sorts of pests that actually exist on cannabis, which is sort of an understudied discipline is also really important too, which I have a lot of that kind of information as well. Um, and I think just as people become more familiar with the damage and what the organism actually looks like and when it's most active for them in their area and just in general, then they can start to um, really appreciate that and regularly um, diagnose the right problem. But when it comes to like a, a sort of nutritional deficiencies or um, other sorts of abiotic problems, um, those can be a little bit more ambiguous. I couldn't agree more. There's a, a lot that it could be with the nutrition, but as far as uh, IPM issues, it, it sounds like you've got a lot of different approaches to going about it, which I think is responsible. I really love your pest primer series for that specific reason, because it shows people what the pests look like. And oftentimes people will say, hey, do I have spider mites? I'll go get that pest primer series of the two spot spider mite and send them like, hey, does it look like any of these? And you've got not just one type, but like several different uh, photos of different colors and some of them have two spots and some of them don't have two spots and knowing these types of little information can be really helpful in identifying and knowing how to combat certain pests so I couldn't thank you enough for all the previous information you've already put out and the stuff that you're currently working on uh, releasing to us so people should definitely look out for that on the Sentinel YouTube. Noah did you have a comment there? Yeah I actually um, was wondering this the other day um, I have a kind of a question for the panel, um, kind of off this uh, subject here. How, how do you guys feel about giving your plant in flower in the 1212 flip area in the first couple of weeks, few, few weeks, uh, nitrogen, if you're seeing a nitrogen deficiency? I've heard kind of, you know, different, different opinions on it, and I've kind of experimented a little bit. I'm just kind of curious what the panel thinks about that. I, think I do. First it. few weeks of flower, it's okay. Uh, what do you think, uh, Spartan? I'll say I do it regularly. I do it in um, with a uh, oh shit. I do it both ways. So in uh, you know obviously there's there's some nitrogen in early flower honestly, and then you don't really cut it out until what three four. But um, at home I kind of step it back because in organics I always in my mind I'm thinking with the amendments that I'm using it's going to take about two weeks for them to break down. So I'm thinking two weeks ahead. So I cut off my top dress probably week three is the latest 
time, I'll put a top dress on my soil that has nitrogen in it. After that, I won't, uh, I won't top dress nitrogen. So to answer your question, I would. Um, but I think a better, especially if you're growing in soil, I think a better, um, especially if it's early, like week one, two, and flower, a better way to address a nitrogen deficiency might be foliar at that point, just to get that immediate absorption on the leaf and get it into the plant faster. Because um, you having a, having excess nitrogen in the soil, once you hit a certain point of flower, is going to hurt your yield. So I just think it's a little bit safer if you if you go the route of a foliar at that point. You know, usually you don't have huge buds at you know week two. Uh, I think between one and two, you can still try to save your crop at with a foliar spray. I think so. As long as there's not bud sets developing, um, I totally agree with that. And with that, we're at about uh, 5.55 out here on the West Coast, so we got about five minutes left. I'll let everybody else on the panel answer that question, but I know Spartan Grown, you got to get going over to Michigan Bros Grow Show. I want to make you late, so if you want to give your final shout-outs, and then uh, we'll do the rest of the panel if you want to answer, and you'll all give your final shout-outs, and we'll close it up. I just want to shout out to Shane for putting this together, man. It's awesome that we could get to hang out and talk shop, basically. I love it. And shout out to you guys for listening and bringing up great questions. Same thing to chat. I mean, I love chat. That's what I live for. That's why I do all these podcasts. I just love interacting in chat. That's me and all these other shows. I'm in chat right along with you guys. So I love to be here and interact with you. That's why I'm always pulling up questions and stuff. So grows love to everybody out there. And uh, see you over at the Mission Grows Grow Show starting in a few minutes thanks for joining us and if you want to find him he's at spartan grown on instagram and you can find his commercial facility at mitten canico they're doing great things up there in uh, michigan and the michigan bros grow show is a awesome live sunday show as well if you are looking for something to follow up this show with i highly suggest that one uh, as well as talking shit with eagle afterwards it's he does that every single night though so check him out um does anybody in regards to Noah's nitrogen question, I think, Doc, maybe you might want to have something to say about that or can-can? Um, sure, I could chime in a little bit. Uh, the, you know, when, we're, when you're fertigating, the nitrogen needs don't really change as much as people think they do between veg and flower. Um, so the ratio of nitrogen that we provide drops a little bit. The bigger sort of difference um, between the, the vegetative blend and the, the flowering blend is the ratio of... Uh, phosphorus um, goes up. Um, the other thing I would say that nitrogen is required by the plant sort of throughout the, the sort of theory there is you, you don't want to burn them with it during flowering because you want to be able to allow the plant to, to uptake phosphorus and potassium. Um, but they definitely still have a need for nitrogen, so you can't cut it out. Most of our nitrogen comes from uh, micro of the, if you're using a three-part blend, um, it comes from the, the, the micro, um, and it stays, you know, in my nutrient chart, um, the dose of micro stays like, is the most consistent thing on the nutrient charts. I was looking over at it, um, but it stays almost the same rate and sort of the whole way through the grow, particularly during the stretch. Um, so, you know, if you're, if you're doing photo period plants, that first week after you flip, um, isn't really the stretch. That's the, the sort of transition period from vegetative to flowering. It's the next two weeks, usually, sometimes a little bit longer than that, um, where the plant really enters uh, a, a really vigorous period of growth. 
And if it doesn't have sufficient nitrogen during that period of time, it won't grow as well. And you could end up with sort of pale plants, nutrient deficient plants. Um, after that, with, sorry, I was just gonna say, that's always what I think about with nitrogen is like, it's sort of what supplies like the green and like whenever nitrogen goes out, like you sort of yeah. see that green fading and plants are green. Like they, they want to be green right. and healthy. The greener the jar, the better they can photosynthesize. It, it sort of suggests that they're doing more photosynthesis, that they have more energy, and that they are also um, going to be growing better. So when you see them sort of really being nutrient or nitrogen deficient, um, we notice the paleness more than we sort of notice the the slowdown in the rate of growth. Right? It, it's harder to see that they would have been growing faster otherwise. Um, but particularly during that stretch, if you can keep the, the nutrient needs adjusted properly during the stretch, the plants like explode. Um, and if you're out of range or doing something, um, toxifying them with something, um, they can really slow down at that point. And I depend on that growth. Um, the, my whole sort of strategy of how to fill my tent depends on the plant's growing quite a bit during the stretch. So it's an important time to kind of manage the nutrient needs appropriately. Um, the other thing that we notice when um, we're fertigating like that is the plant will actually sort of um, signal that transition um, with the electrical conductivity. Um, so oftentimes, um, at the beginning of the stretch, growers will notice that their electrical conductivity starts to go up um, in the runoff if they don't switch, if they stay on sort of the transition blend or one of the vegetative blends too long and don't get into the, the early flowering blend, your EC will go up. And at the end of the stretch, the EC will start to drop down um, as plants are able to uh, take up more of the phosphorus and potassium that's there, and they're actually sort of um, dropping the, the EC of the runoff water. So when you see those numbers start to move, if you're fertigating, that's indicating that uh, the change in nutrient blend is, is required. So when you start to get into the stretch, you'll see the numbers um, go up and switch into the early bloom blend, which I really think early bloom blend should be renamed the stretch blend. Um, and then when you see the, the EC start to drop down at the end of that, the, the plants are ready for the, the mid bloom blend. That's a, uh, you know, <clears throat> not often discussed, but pertinent analysis. And I'm glad that you shared it, but we just hit that six o'clock hour out here on the West coast. So all right, it went over. <laughs> no, it's fine. We're, we're all good. Uh, this part of this show is we're casual laid back and it, it's not, exactly on the two hour timeline if we go a few extra minutes that's totally fine but um with that being said i think it's a good spot to wrap it up because i think we hit a ton of topics and got a lot of the chat interaction and some of the questions from uh, previous shows that people were looking to have answered so sorry satisfied Jack, just, with this week go ahead Kenya. sorry just before we uh, uh go in the shadows i i just want to kind of go back a little bit to that i just give my two cents on the whole uh, diagnosing a uh, question there um i just for anyone that's I, relatively speaking i think that uh applying the fix so to speak after you've properly diagnosed the situation is um the less difficult part of the process um it's you know less effort and once you know exactly what's what's the issue and i think that the, probably the bigger mistake sometimes that's made is the actual diagnosing part. And uh, I, I mean, I'll just tell uh, any of the growers that are listening that 
you know, the last thing you want to do is try to apply a fix um, prematurely because you probably will likely compound the problem if you haven't fully diagnosed it correctly. And I, so I, I think that the key is uh, one is early diagnosis. I think some people just need to know exactly what a healthy plant looks like. So you know what you're looking for because anything outside of healthy plants should catch your attention so that you can, um, you know, uh, catch it early. And once you've seen that there's particular issue, which involves properly uh, uh, and consistently crop scouting your plants, not just looking, doing a quick once over, just looking at the tops, you really need to kind of dig a little deeper and go underneath the plants and, and uh, which becomes more difficult if you have a lot of them, but you know, you just got to put in the time. And uh, once you see something early, then just watch it first. Don't, you don't need to panic. You don't need to act right away uh, in most cases. Uh, and then hopefully you can diagnose it correctly. And then when diagnosing, you gotta uh, you gotta take in the entire plant. Um, I, I get a lot of people reach out to me and they send me a picture of a leaf or what have you. And I mean that's helpful for sure. Uh, but I, I I generally like to know where that leaf is, uh, top, bottom, middle. I mean what what is the rest of the plant doing? Um, context matters here, so it'll help you to de- determine whether or not, to Dr. MJ's point, whether or not the issue is something based with nutrition. It isn't always uh, a deficiency or um, toxicity. It could be other factors, you know, it could be environment. Uh, She talked about light and so on and so forth. So being able to look at the entire plant and maybe even the entire grow, because where the, you know, where the plant is situated in your grow could have an impact on why it's suffering from whatever it's suffering from. So I just, I think the effort is in, is in the diagnosis, is in catching things early and being able to determine what is the issue early on. And then, uh, one, like I said, once you've diagnosed what the problem is, I think finding the fix is, is, is much easier. I totally agree with that, Ken Ken. With that said, I think uh, you can go ahead and be the first one to give your shout out. Yeah, for sure. So um, yeah, it can can grow on all my social media. I'm glad to have uh, participated again in another great show. And uh, thanks to the chat, uh, the panel, and to uh, Shane and Chief Homegrow for having me. Thank you for coming, Can Can. I always uh, appreciate you joining us. Next up, we have Matt Gates. Matthew Gates. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. I um... I always like the questions about crop scouting. I've been doing a lot of training recently with regards to that, actually, despite the situation at hand, a lot of that's remote, but some of it has been in person. And a lot of the things we practice, like social distancing and biosecurity like that is kind of what I do. So in a way, I'm kind of at home in a surreal sort of way. It's a different kind of pest, unfortunately. Um, If you're interested in pest information, from a professional integrated pest management specialist like myself, most of my best content is in two platforms, Instagram at SyncAngel and on YouTube here, the same account that I've been commenting with, uh, Zenthanol. And if you're interested, you can also contact me at Zenthanol.com. Thanks again for joining us. Uh, I always appreciate your input as an IPM specialist and I've followed both those accounts, the Xenthanol and uh, on YouTube and Sync Angel, and I've gained valuable pest insight from it. And I'm very thankful for you and continuously thankful for all the new things that you're posting constantly. So thanks again for joining us. Next up, we got Dr. MJ Coco. 
Hey guys, yeah, so sorry I was late again. I like to try to be here for the shows, but I'm glad you guys seem to do fine in my absence. Um, I wanted to wish everybody that, that celebrates Easter a happy Easter today. Um, and anybody that's interested in the stuff we've been doing on Grow Lights, um, I just published the, the last major article in our Grow Light guide. Um, so if you're interested in Grow Lights, there's is some interesting stuff in this one. It's our grow light testing protocol. Um, and we define um, sort of the optimal usable photosynthetic fo photon flux. Um, so if you're interested in that, we try to lay it out. I give a bunch of par charts and graphics and stuff like that. But um, happy to be here with you guys. I hope everybody's holding up well. And thanks to the panel for sort of filling in, in my, when I'm not here. Um, and the chat and everybody else in the Shane, of course, um, for bringing us all together. Thanks again for joining us, Doc. We always appreciate your insight and uh, scientific approach to a lot of the cannabis cultivation, which is uh, more new to the scene. A lot of people went with the bro science for a long time. It's nice to see you bring in as much regular science as you can into the, the space. And we always appreciate that. Well, Next up, you. sorry. Next up, we got Noah the Grower. Yeah, I'm uh, Noah the Grower from Instagram with two E's. I've uh, been doing this for quite a while. I uh, have a good time. I always learn from everyone on the panel. And I just uh, want to say thanks again for having me and great show, guys. See you guys all next week. Thanks for coming, Noah. We always appreciate your insight. And check him out on Instagram at Noah, T-H-E-E, -E, Groa. He's got some really frosty buds on there and definitely worth checking out and giving him a follow. Uh, he's a great guy as well. So check out Noah. Last up, I've got myself, but I want to give a shout out to Cheap Home Grow. That's Shane. He's the guy who brings us all together that a few of the other panelists have already given props to. Also want to say thank you to Kyle Breeder. You can find him at pbreeding.com. He's got some really awesome genetics. Uh, if you'd like to check them out, you can buy them there. You can also find him at Predicative Breeding on Instagram, as well as many other social media platforms. Last up, I am the guest host for this week. You can find me at Jack Greenstock on Instagram, as well as Cannabuzz. I'm also on Twitter at Jack underscore Greenstock, and I host my own show called Greenstock Talks. But more often, you can find me right here on Sundays at the Growing With My Fellow Growers live panel, which is what you're currently listening to. Make sure you subscribe to Shane's YouTube channel, uh, Cheap Home Grow on YouTube, and give a thumbs up to this video if you're still in the live chat. We've got a few of you left in, so thank you for hanging around. I want to give a couple shout outs. The American one, I see you. Fumidor and the flavors. Uh, we got uh, Jess and the Bean and Ned Bazinga. Thank you all for joining us and hanging in till the very end. We really appreciate the uh, live chat, giving us feedback, and thanks throughout the show to talk about. So thank you all for coming. This was uh, another great week, and I appreciate everyone being here. And with that being said, this is uh, Jack Greenstock signing off. Grower love. Happy growing. <laughs>